I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. Yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Why? Why would any human being do this? And if that is a question we may never get an answer to, there are other more immediate ones that we must try to grapple with. I've been a paediatrician since 1992, and I had never in my career seen anything like this. Dr. Ravi Jayaram, one of the neonatal consultants who first realised she was killing their defenceless patients. His attempts to stop her were thwarted by managers. We bullied her, uh, we'd behaved unprofessionally, we'd behaved in ways that were unbecoming to the profession, and then read out a letter from her, which was a, a very aggressive letter from her, basically saying, I'm coming back to work and you have to work with me and I'm going to prove to you that I'm a great nurse and I'm not a killer like you say. And then Tony Chambers finished off by saying, so she's coming back to work and this is the most chilling thing. I'm drawing a line under this, you will draw a line under this and if you cross that line there will be consequences for you. Behind the door of this ordinary suburban house, Britain's most prolific baby killer was finally arrested three years after her murder spree began. Everybody and welcome to I Could Murder a Podcast Series Eight, Episode Seventeen: The Audience Vote. And sitting across from me is <laughs> the frankly frightful, the forgettably feisty, the fish fisting Ben Carter. How you doing, Ben? Oh wow, fish fisting uh, took me by surprise there. I got my. I've just been like cough. you got two cods in your hand, batter just coughing up my room. Double fisting, a couple of cods. <laughs> sure, we've all been there, haven't we? I don't eat fish, but go on. Yeah, well, I, I knew the F-bombs were coming uh, in some way or another, and uh, therefore I just consumed a big gulp of coffee before you started so that I didn't, you know, struggle to consume it. But yeah, doing really well. Series 8, episode 17. Just really happy to be here. Um, really happy to be here. How are you doing, producer Dan? Very good. Well, actually not very good. I'll be honest with you, boys. Oh, oh. Play some sad music, Dan. Uh, someone uh, has kindly donated their head of hair to me. I've had a hair transplant. <laughs> it's your own hair, isn't it? Yeah, it's my own hair. 
Go on, Dad. No, I'm just feeling a little bit worse for wear. Uh, I currently look a bit like a potato because mm. my face has ballooned up to an insane level. Um, it'll all be worth it in the long run, I hope, because I have a, a nice hairline that I can show off for a, the next 15 years or so. No more hats. No more hats. Yeah, the hats will be gone. Hopefully. Yeah. Dan's given me a little, like me and Ben, a little uh, time lapse, kind of just pictures as, as he goes on and he just gets more and more swollen. So, yeah, hopefully uh, hopefully we've, we've seen the worst of it, Dan, and hopefully you go back to a new potato from, from the, uh, the jacket potato. I tell you what, if we get up to 1,500 members on icmep.co.uk this month, I'll uh, release all the photographs. Ooh, I mean, that's... <laughs> Obviously not going to happen. <laughs> I mean, I'm keen for that. We can maybe load the number a little bit. But... No, yeah, Dan, uh, I think... Can... Congrats on it. It looks like it's going to be great, but I don't know Thank how you. well she said to someone who's had it. But yeah, well done for well done for going through with it. I think it's going to be something you don't regret. Regret. Uh, so uh, I think so too. Thank you very much. Good on you. And as you may have spotted, we have new merch over on the store. The Sunny Side Up merch range. Uh, photos taken by the lovely Mark Logan. Um, yeah, some go on, Mark. Yeah, go on, Mark. It's some lovely stuff over there. Uh, t-shirts, totes, mugs. Uh, pint glasses, uh, shirts, jumpers, for, you know, get for cold season, some jumpers. We're in a bit more colourful for these ones as well. Mm. So let us know what you think. It's hard to hear your guys' thoughts on the, the Sunny Side Up merch. Yes, and we hope everybody enjoyed last week's episode, The Life and Crimes of uh, Charlie Bronson. Uh, interesting one. Probably one of my favourites of the series so far, which surprised me, actually. I thought it was just going to be a, a guy in prison. Yeah, I had the voice. I really like the voiceover. Big shout out to Tom Andrews with the voiceover. I th- honestly thought... Yeah, he absolutely nailed it. So he um, killed it. Yeah, he did. But yeah, no, same same with me. Then I thought I kind of knew. Um, like I said, underwhelming outside prison, overwhelming inside of prison. But uh, yeah, there's a lot more to it, and it certainly seemed to get people's imaginations going with the comments about watching the uh, about listening to the episode as well. A hundred percent. And uh, with this being our audience vote episode, obviously it's the penultimate episode of the series. We've got a big series finale. Um, coming for you next week which we're excited for Um, we will be taking a bit of a break to prepare for series nine um, but in the meantime we'll be releasing weekly content over on icmap.co.uk at the time of recording we have 134 extra episodes on there and we just covered the baby-faced beast uh, aaron campbell the isle of butte murder of alicia mcphail which was a yeah very another very upsetting one and yet also on the site we will be doing a special halloween episode and a special bonfire night episode which is all uh, very exciting and very on brand for the season i would say so yes today is the audience vote episode and uh, the final was between which sounds an odd thing to say it was 9-11 versus lucy letby uh, which uh yeah, it's, not, it's an odd battle. But Lucy Letby received the most votes. As I said before, it was between, I think, about 50-odd votes between between the two uh, cases to cover. So today's case is the case of Lucy Letby, the baby killer nurse, Britain's most prolific child killer, the Chester child murders, Lucy Letby, the grief collector. So immediately when it became clear that this case was going to garner the most votes, we got maybe half a dozen comments stating that it was too soon or too raw and disrespectful to the victims. Whilst we do totally understand these comments and completely appreciate that many people may wish to give this episode a miss, as a result, we also want to emphasise that we feel it's important to shine a light on cases such as this to understand just how and why it was able to happen and also to tell the victim's stories. Yeah, and I think I also have to put my hands up. It's kind of an awkward one for me because over the summer, obviously when the trial 
uh, was very prominent in the news. Um, we must have got dozens of messages on different social media platforms requesting this case. And I, and I replied to all of them just saying, look, it does feel a bit too soon and we don't have all the information we would need to provide a fair overview of the case. And ideally for me, probably this would have been one that we covered maybe in a year or two's time. But at the same time, um, the crimes did occur eight, almost eight years ago at the time of recording. And there have literally been hundreds upon hundreds of other podcasts made about the case, documentaries, articles. There's a particular podcast, I think it's by the BBC or ITV, that literally has 64 episodes and it's following the trial itself, solely focusing on that. Um, and, and yeah, that said, there are a lot of very reactionary creators out there. And I don't think necessarily we are a reactionary channel. I think predominantly we tend to focus on older cases because we don't want to spread misinformation and we don't want to obviously, if people are still feeling highly emotional regarding a certain case, obviously we don't want to upset anyone or offend anyone that way. But but yeah, I think it's, uh, it's, it's very important to tell the victim's stories. And uh, yeah, I mean, this for me, maybe it was kind of, um, out of sight, out of mind, because I've not followed this case at all when it was in the media. I didn't want to know more about it. And through now, obviously, the audience vote, we've researched it. And it's, yeah, it's an absolutely harrowing one indeed. Very, very upsetting. Yeah, I think as well, Ben, because like, like you said, I think the big thing in there was we don't want to spread misinformation. And I think you were definitely surprised. I remember you messaging me saying you were surprised by how much there was out there about it. Because uh, we were kind of even thinking it might be a struggle to get enough information to make it all make sense within the timeline and everything like that. But yeah, it's quite the opposite. There's a lot out there. There's lots of big podcasts that have covered this as well and a lot earlier on than we have, obviously. Um, so yeah, I mean, completely appreciate if people want to maybe give this one a miss or give this one a skip. But um, yeah, we thought, especially with the audience voting for it, that, you know, something that people want to l learn about. So uh, we made the decision that, yeah, we're, we're going to cover this case. So as always, we're going to hand over to our handsome potato, producer Dan, to set the scene. The crimes of Lucy Letby cast a haunting shadow over the world of healthcare, with its darkness still observed almost a decade later. Within the sterile walls of the neonatal unit at the Countess of Chester Hospital, Nurse Letby committed acts of unspeakable, unforgivable horror. The very place where parents had entrusted their newborns to receive life-saving care became a nightmarish setting for the murder of innocent infants. Like Dr Shipman in the 70s, 80s and 90s, and like Nurse Allett in the early 90s, the thought of someone entrusted with the care of vulnerable, defenceless individuals turning into a sinister figure of evil is nothing short of terrifying. With the chilling question lingering that many struggled to comprehend, how and why could such darkness hide behind the facade of a paediatric nurse. As always, um, we like to start with a quote. Uh, this comes from Judge Justice Goss at Lucy Letby's recent sentencing. Uh, there will be a lot more on this and from the judge later on in our timeline. You acted in a way that was completely contrary to the normal human instincts of nurturing and caring for babies, and in gross breach of the trust that all citizens place in those who work in the medical and caring professions. There is no doubt that you are intelligent and outwardly were a very conscientious, hard-working, knowledgeable, confident and professional nurse, which enabled you, repeatedly, to harm babies on the unit without arousing suspicion for some time. Lucy Letby was born on the 4th of January 1990 in the cathedral city of Hereford, Herefordshire. She was the only child born to Susan and John Letby, both of whom were said to have been incredibly dedicated to their careers, with Susan working as an accounts clerk and John working as the finance manager of a furniture retail company. 
A note worth mentioning here is that the couple had what some may consider a significant age gap, with John being almost 15 years older than Susan. So John was 44 when Lucy was born, whilst Susan was 29. John and Susan, who had been married for six months at the time that Lucy was born, were described as an affectionate and loving couple, who absolutely doted on their only daughter. The couple raised Lucy in a quiet cul-de-sac within Hereford, not far from the England and Wales border, in a home that they still live in to date. Neighbours would remark that Lucy was an incredibly well-behaved child who seemed to be extremely close with her parents and was, quote, a delight to and for them. She was a good little girl. I watched her grow up next door from the moment she was born. She was a delight. Lucy's own birth was not without its complications, something that many believe she carried with her for the rest of her life. It is said that she was born prematurely and their mother Susan had experienced the complicated labour as a result. According to one of Lucy's close childhood friends, Dawn Howe, when Lucy learned of her mother's experiences and that hospital nurses had essentially saved her life, she told me she had quite a difficult birth herself and was quite poorly. And I think that's affected a lot of her life. She was very grateful for being alive and she put that down to the nurses who would have helped save her life. Everything that she did from this point onwards was geared towards the ultimate goal of becoming a nurse. She feels that's what she was called to do, to help children who might have been born in similar circumstances. Some people have argued that there were in fact no problems with Lucy's birth and that this was a story she would spread in order to get attention and sympathy. Which is definitely plausible as there isn't very much information available about this whatsoever. Lucy grew up in a middle class family and had very few difficult experiences as a youngster, according to neighbours and unnamed family friends. She would go on holiday with her parents three times a year from the moment she was born right through to her late 20s, at the time of her eventual arrest. Her parents quickly became her very best friends and she felt less need for a very heavy social life, having a heart set on the future of being a nurse. She was part of a group of girls, many of whom were interested in a career in nursing. I remember going to a careers day with Lucy and some of the events where jobs in the health and social care sector were being banded around. She was only interested in nursing. So yeah, th- at this point as well, so I, as soon as I saw that she said that she herself had experienced a difficult birth, I, I, went, I put that straight into the old Google machine and tried to find something. But all I can find are friends' quotes saying that she said she had a difficult mm. birth. I couldn't find anything explaining what had happened or what the circumstances were. So yeah, many believe that, again, this was something that she would just say uh, to garner sympathy and attention, which is, yeah. If anyone said to me that they were born in a difficult birth, but, you know, they're fine now and the mum is fine i wouldn't be like get giving you loads of sympathy about them it's a really odd lie isn't it because it's like mm. i can completely understand if, it, if it's led to any kind of further difficulties for, for either party but the fact that is if you're just saying yeah when i was born yeah a bit of a difficult um bit of difficult labor yeah, i'm not expecting anyone to go oh man i'm sorry about that mm. yeah the only it's thing odd. i can think is that she thought that's oh, kind of cooler to say that which it isn't than uh <laughs> than saying oh yeah i just fancy being a nurse give everything some reason mm, it's like people with tattoos who pretend every tattoo means something was said it doesn't <laughs> at the age of 11 lucy was diagnosed with an underactive thyroid a condition which can cause tiredness weight gain and depression in its sufferers and if this condition is left untreated it can occasionally lead to infertility or problems in pregnancy something that a young lucy would no doubt have been made aware of Shortly after this, she also developed optic neuritis, a condition caused by the inflammation of the optic nerve, which can also cause pain and blurred vision. She would regularly tell her friends uh, at this time in her life that, quote, everything is just peeing me off. So yeah, a lot of, um, a lot of frustration at an early age here. 
Lucy would go on to attend school at Aylstone Comprehensive Secondary before going on to Hereford Sixth Form College. Uh, and this was actually the same Sixth Form College as Ellie Golding. Got a little story about Ellie Golding, if you want it. Oh, I know this one. Jack Joy, my old colleague uh, and an old pal, uh, became viral in a viral video when a, a Royal Mail oh, yeah. lorry was driving along the road with his car facing the other way. And Ellie Golden stopped the, the lorry, made sure Jack was all right. Yeah, amazing. Wow. Which is, abs- and Jack just seems so casual about it. Um, but yeah, absolutely bizarre video. He's going a long like, way in that car as well, sideways. Yeah, he was just honking, he was honking his horn. <laughs> yeah. And the guy driving that just didn't seem to be, I didn't realise. Surely, yeah. surely you realise. Um, I remember seeing that all over Twitter before even realising it was Jack. And then you told me it was him. Yeah. So at sick form, she was an above average student who seemed to thrive with her studies. And though she had a small friendship circle, she wasn't extensively sociable and did not encounter any issues in terms of bullying or abuse. So yeah, by all accounts, a very typical childhood in the UK. Uh, She came from hardworking parents. She was obviously in a middle class family. uh, And these parents provided a fairly idyllic upbringing for a young Lucy, uh, which, which probably makes this case even more unusual. Definitely, yeah. I mean, yeah, there's no, so far, apart from, you could say, well, very loosely that the tr- troubled, uh, her mum having trouble g- giving birth to her, there's only thing you say from that would be that maybe that led her to wanting to be a nurse, but even that's like, a, if anything, is a nice story. So no red flag so far. Uh, despite not having a booming social life, Lucy did have a small group of friends who dubbed themselves as misfits and outcasts. I don't think they're talking about the, the, the rock band and the... Uh, Two great bands. The other band, yeah. Who would go to the local Hope City Church together every Sunday. The group would regularly take photos together outside of the local cathedral and even went on a group holiday together to Greece. One of the group's mothers said the following. I think she seemed like a really happy girl. She was part of a close-knit group. There were no boyfriends for Lucy. Well, not that I knew of anyway. As a teenager, whilst at sixth form, Lucy took on her first part-time job working at the checkouts of a local WH Smith. She would be smart with her money, opening a savings account that she'd regularly put a large portion of her wages into, whereas lots of her friends, and pretty much everyone else, would go out and spend their money on the latest clothes, makeup, and nights out that Lucy would very rarely attend. So yeah, one thing I've learned from all the you know documentaries I've seen in this, podcasts I've seen in this case in particular, Lucy seems a very dull person. Which might sound mean, but someone, when you're at your first job, you're not putting the big chunk into savings. Like you are buying stupid things and crap clothes and going on nights out. No? Yeah, no, you are. You're, you're absolutely right. I think I'm trying to think if I had any friends that did 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 have saving accounts. I feel like I feel like I must know at least one. But unless she's getting money from her folks as well, it's like I don't know. I mean, all I can do is from from my days I, I was not saving money and putting it away which obviously is a smart thing to do but it's a very dull thing to do Lucy was described as very beige and very average by one of her classmates and quite hauntingly when a group of Lucy's friends were tagging one another in a Facebook trend that was circulating between them a bunch of different images from the Mr. and Little Miss series they named Lucy as Little Miss Innocent the Innocent One mm. which uh, is definitely you know she played up to that massively uh you know, throughout her life in terms of being, you know, the shy, quiet one, the, you know, the hardworking one, the one you could trust, say, pair of hands, etc., etc. Uh, it's very much how she wanted to be portrayed. So, um, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, all, all, the, the main words that come up with this case, or when look, certainly when looking into her life, is beige, vanilla, and average. Yeah, this vanilla killer was a phrase I heard someone say. 
But yeah. After finishing sixth form, uh, Lucy continued to chase her lifelong dream of becoming a nurse by enrolling at the University of Chester. Once again, she was described as very quiet, very average, and very focused by her fellow pupils. She would also work as a student nurse during her three years of training. Lucy graduated in 2011, aged 21, with a BSc in child nursing, one of her few university friends would recall. She wasn't a girly girl who always stayed up late and partied. She was part of a small group who were all very meticulous and focused on their studies. They loved it. She was quiet, she was awkward, and she was a little bit geeky. In this moment, she became the first member of the Letby family to have graduated from university, with her parents taking out an advert in the local paper, the Hereford Times, to celebrate, posting a photo of her in a gown, holding her degree, as well as the caption, Letby Lucy, BSc Ons, in child nursing. We are so proud of you after all your hard work. Love, Mum and Dad. To some, this may just seem like two very proud parents sharing their love and pride of their daughter with the local community. But others are quick to remark that this was the second advert in the Hereford Times that her parents had taken out in just under a year. But who's got time to be... That's just screams to me a small village. You know, bitchiness of people going, oh, that's the second ad they've taken out by Lucy this year. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, I don't know. I think, I think um, it's an interesting way to display your feelings taking out a newspaper ad yeah well i guess it's the old school way of basically just doing an instagram post for things that's isn't true. it yeah that's but, true two yeah. in a year's a lot though seems heavy and the hereford times seems like it sounds like a big paper rather than a little village one but i'm just i could have totally misinterpreted that i'll do some research mate you you do your you do your paragraph i'll, I'll do some on. research yeah, all right, all right mate. okay so yeah uh, this was the second advert in just under a year uh, that they took out with the hereford times uh, taking out another advert earlier that year sharing a photo of an infant smiling lucy and wishing her a very happy 21st birthday Ten thousand readership ben is that a lot i don't know is that big readership down maybe it is for those type of messages i, th- I thought it was quite large mm. for a birthday and a graduation but who knows? Who knows? So the reason that we mention these two adverts is because although she is said to have had a very nice childhood by all accounts, it is believed that Lucy was beginning to feel suffocated by her parents' affection and attention. Being their only child, Lucy was completely doted on and was always the focus of her parents' priorities. As Lucy was now an adult, it is alleged that she started to feel trapped under an overbearing cloud that was her parents' love. And she would even remark to one friend that this completely changed her life's plans and trajectory. The following year, in 2012, Lucy informed a friend that she wanted to go and work in hospitals in New Zealand, at least for a few years, and obviously this being on the other side of the globe. But she claimed that she didn't dare to bring this up with her parents and couldn't go through with the move as she knew that it would, quote, completely devastate them. As a compromise, she decided that she wanted to move almost 100 miles away from Hereford to Chester, where she had attended university, in order to eventually work at the Countess of Chester Hospital. Lucy completed two of her student nursing training programmes at Liverpool's Women's Hospital and the Countess of Chester Hospital, apparently falling in love with the latter. A year later after graduating, and after much back and forth with her parents, they finally allowed Lucy to leave the family home and relocate to Chester for work. Though apparently, they were still very unhappy about her moving so far away. Despite this, her parents, Susan and John, contributed a large sum of money towards Lucy buying her first house, a £179,000 semi-detached three-bedroom property that was located just a mile away from the hospital on Westbourne Road. When she moved in, she adopted two rescue cats, Tigger and Smudge. 
Her new setting was much like the house she had grown up in, in Hereford. It was a quiet, safe area. Each house on the street had very neatly kept houses and gardens that, that appeared immaculate. Her new neighbours were predominantly made up of retired people or families with children, and the neighbours would very rarely see Lucy as she would so often be working overtime. They occasionally would see her leave the house in the early hours of the morning with sets of Morrison's bags to do her weekly shop, but that was about it. Yeah, I mean, throughout this, I did, I've seen a lot of articles that discuss um, how close Lucy was and still is with her parents, uh, but there are some with the, that really zone in on the narrative that she was a, a loner, no social life, bit of a strange relationship with, with, with her own parents, and they basically said that, oh yeah, she would hold regular sleepovers for her mum and dad. But surely that's just your mum and dad visiting you in a different city. The word sleepover makes it sound weird. Yeah. I don't... I, think that's just someone making it like because yeah if your parents visit they've just come to visit yeah and yeah sleepovers makes it sound like they're all having cocoa and together exactly yeah i thought it was a weird way to angle it would they were perhaps trying to make it sound a little bit shady a bit creepy yeah despite being 100 miles away from her parents lucy still felt very smothered by them again that's dependent on who you believe uh, she would continue to go on holiday with them three times a year which sounds excessive doesn't it if you i mean there's nothing wrong with being close to your parents and you know spending time with them and but three times a year i don't know it just seems quite a lot including regular trips to torquay where the family were known in the local area lucy would continue to feel trapped but continue to want to please her parents a colleague of Lucy's, who was actually in the process of immigrating to New Zealand, would receive text messages from her saying the following. I wish I could make the move you're making, but I couldn't leave my parents. They would be completely devastated. They find it hard enough being away from me now and it's only 100 miles. I came here to uni and didn't go back. They hate it and I feel guilty for staying here sometimes, but it's what I want. My parents worry massively about everything and anything. They hate that I live alone. I feel bad because I know it's really hard for them, especially as I'm an only child. And they mean well, it's just a little suffocating at times, and I constantly feel guilty. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. See, I don't know if it's just her playing the victim, which obviously we're going to get into a lot more during this case, but it sounds like she's just got parents. I completely understand. And obviously, I think everyone knows people who have 
parents who are very full on and don't let them kids do things or they worry too much and very controlling etc etc but it sounds like you know the parents have literally bought her a house uh where she wants to work and live support her in that and go on holidays with her uh so it just sounds like she's kind of like trying to get some sympathy even now just from basically having quite you know involved parents but yeah yeah, I know I, I sort of made a suggestion that the journalist was being unfair by calling it a sleepover when the parents stayed. But I also think that from what I've been able to see, and I could be slandering her in a similar way here, all, all her conversations with other people, there never seemed to be like a small talk conversation. It was always something to invoke a feeling of sympathy or attention. Um, and again, I think we maybe discussed it on a, on a minisode before, but like the type of person that might check in if they go to a hospital, like on social media, <laughs> yeah, yeah. To, to let people know, oh, I've got something going on in my life, you know. I'm... Definitely. I mean, for her, that'd be every day because she's a nurse. But yeah, I get the point. <laughs> so despite these feelings, Lucy began working as a registered nurse on the neonatal unit of the Countess of Chester Hospital in 2012. Nurse 11I0094E, she immediately immersed herself in the role. Or nurse, I'm going to try and say it in a cooler way, nurse 11I0094E. Does that sound cooler? I mean, Dan started clicking his finger like LEG after he said it. Thank you. So sick. Boy, okay, sure. Oh, I needed that. Thank you, guys. So, yeah, with her becoming a uh, registered, getting a pin, she immediately immersed herself in the new role, proving to be friendly and polite to patients as well as family members. She would often make conversations with family members, sometimes to the point of oversharing, particularly if the conversation somehow moved on to discussing her love life, in which she would often state that she was single and very happy to be so. She would also go the extra mile and go out of her way to make handmade cards if it were special occasions for the parents of her patients, for example Mother's Day or Father's Day, and she would always appear to be very bubbly and helpful. Lucy also very quickly took part in campaigning and fundraising for a new neonatal unit in the hospital. So neonatal, I, I mean, I had to, I don't know about you boys, I had to have a little look at what that meant. For those that don't know, uh, neonatal means newborn or the first 28 days of life. So neonatal units tend to specialise in the care of babies that are born early, with low weight, or who have a medical condition that requires specialist treatment or supervision. And yeah, a staggering stat, over 90,000 babies are born premature or sick and in need of neonatal care in the UK each year. And yeah, I mean, with that, not only that, that I mean, that's a staggering stat for you. We've just it given is. you that. But I thought, well, that hospital name, um, the Countess of Chester, is pretty interesting. Is it? It's kind of an it's different, isn't it? A bit different. Okay, cool. Throw me in. Dan, please. Let me just find the tape. Roll it. No, I've lost it. Okay. Ben Carter's interesting facts. facts. Is it? Facts. facts. Yeah, they are sometimes. Perfect. Ben Carter's interesting facts. Interesting facts. Welcome back. Welcome back. The Countess of Chester Hospital. That's an interesting one, isn't it? I think you keep saying it, but uh, yeah, I guess <laughs> it's, it's an odd name. Yes, I think odd. Yeah, yeah, odd, yeah. Well, one thing I like to do when we cover a case, Tom and Dan and, and the rest of the world, is really understand the scene, really get a flavour for the environment. And so the first thing I did with the Countess of Chester Hospital was head over to Google Reviews. You love Google, don't you? I do love Google, yeah. So perhaps unsurprisingly, I was met with the aggregated score of 3.7 stars out of 5. So I thought, oh... That's sort of, there's been probably some bad reviews there to knock it down a bit. And of the, at the time, 258 reviews that have been left, 
60 of them are one-star reviews. So, yeah, almost a quarter of them uh, are one-star reviews. Uh, I thought that a lot of these one-stars were going to be perhaps referencing Lucy Letby. Um, but to be fair to them, a lot of the one-star reviews relate to the waiting time in A&E. Which I don't I think is... many of the parents will be going on there to... No, oh, but it's, I, I thought I'd, we'd me done it... Me fighting back against this is review in the hospital <laughs> no but I, I have to be careful here but i thought there's a case we've covered either shipman or Alit. the hospitals and facilities that they worked at i'm sure that people had like struck them with google one star google reviews maybe it's a different murder case i'm not thinking of the amazon review killer but there was a case where someone's business was impacted by negative reviews as a result of someone's actions i don't know yeah bugging me now but yeah i thought okay well if they're not mentioning let be what else is going on and i decided to just compile a list of some of my favorites and this is this is not me mocking i need to be very clear here this is not me mocking those that are in need of hospital treatment uh that is a very fine line to tread but just some of these reviews why are you smiling yeah no no i'm not smiling i had a little bit of um moisture in my mustache dan did you uh, think when he said there's an interesting name it might be something about the name yeah yeah cool well, it's about the name and the reviews that surround the name. <laughs> I mean, in okay, I'm interested yeah. to find out the but name. But these, these are facts, yeah, Ben, just checking. These are, see, well, these, are, these are factual in terms of the opinions of the people that left <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I guess. So, yeah, we're, we're nearly done with the series, guys. <laughs> so I'll voice some of my favourites for you now. Please. One star. Do you want me to do accents or not? I don't know. Oh, I think you're, really you're already offending a lot of people. May as well mm, go for her. Go for it. Okay. One star. I was bit by a dog. Called 111 and they said go to the nearest hospital ASAP. I have been here for seven hours now. The bleeding has stopped. Clot. Now I regret the time that I have waited. At this point, I am not leaving just to see the service inside, but seriously, Sad. I know. Inside. But seriously, I know people going to emergencies almost never read reviews and then go. But just in case someone does, don't come here. If it is not an absolute emergency, don't come. It's preposterous how long the wait is. Really struggled with that accent, sorry. Just do the rest in mind because I have not got the range that Thomas got. Do One a, star. No, do a German accent. Yes. Oh, what? Uh, <laughs> One star. I wouldn't take my dog to this place. Unsure if it's related to the previous review. I don't know if that guy's dog perhaps was involved in the previous one. Maybe. One star. So it's hour six sitting in A&E with my 69-year-old mother who had a fall. No idea when we'll be seen by a doctor. All the lights have just gone out, but no one will be sleeping as we have the loudest snorer on earth next to us. The six-hour ambulance wait was terrible too. Have to say the nurses and paramedics were amazing though. I feel sorry for them with full stops in the gaps. And she did a one-star review. One-star review. I mean... It's a long wait, isn't it? But Yeah, but then that's just like, you're, you're hating the state of the NHS in terms of lack of funding. Then you're, mm. then you're hating that, that hospital. That's true. I mean, there's another guy that, it's not one of these ones, but there was another guy that had had to wait 90 minutes and left a one-star review. Fuck me. But I think that's quite speedy these days, isn't it? 90 minutes. It is speedy, yeah. Uh, next one, one-star, block capitals. Why won't somebody answer the bloody phone? Nine exclamation marks. Oof. Next one, one-star, not a good experience today in the discharge lounge. God. When is it? We asked, could we borrow a wheelchair? They said yes. Next thing, they said, can't go out with that. I said, I'll bring it back. They were awful with us. 
We only wheeled my nan to the car outside the discharge lounge and I took it back. A member of staff followed us all the way to the car. Very poor attitude. Totally order of them. Which I don't know what that means, totally order of them. I don't like it when you say discharge lounge. It just sounds like you're, I know. you're being crude. Yeah, I wasn't intentionally being. Mm. Yeah. They should be sacked or given further training. I understand people steal things, but we good people. Okay. One star, a visitor from Peterborough. Absolutely disgraceful service for a two-year-old child with a head injury. A six-hour wait for treatment. Which, yeah, for a head injury, that's, that's pretty scary. But he goes on to say, just not acceptable. On top of this, it's dirty. No, nothing. Okay, tough. And then finally, one star. Terrible place. Been sat in here from nearly six o'clock in the morning for an x-ray, only to find out the lady took me off the system. Stupidity doesn't save lives, does it? Mm. I don't feel like I'd like to go for a beer with any of the people leaving the reviews. Yeah, it's. Uh, I can understand people are unhappy. There's a lot of people seeming to leave the reviews whilst in the A&E section of the hospital as well, like a, a, a real-time review. Um, but yeah, I've, I, I, I'll have to find out which case it was because I'm sure there's one that we've covered where a business was severely impacted uh, in review form. Mm. But yeah, the Countess of Chester Hospital, um, 258 reviews. 60 of them are one star. Uh, so just for context, there are dozens of five-star reviews for, for this hospital. Uh, and one of the most recent ones, in fact, is a five-star. Attended A&E on a Saturday afternoon. Excellent care and consideration. Prompt triage and saw a specialist doctor within 99 minutes. Thank you so much. Oh, wow. Phew. And there's another one that said, I've been going to this hospital for four years um, and it's professional and they attend my child's needs, whether it be an appointment or unexpected visit. Well, there so, you go. Yeah, there's, there's a load of um, five stars as well. It's like every, I mean, people love to, to leave a bad review, don't they? People love to leave a good review. It's A lot of the people that have left the one stars have left multiple reviews on other places. So some people do get a bit trigger happy, don't they, with their review words. They sure do, Ben. <laughs> Back to the episode. Ben Carter's interesting facts. Interesting facts. Dan, maybe... Um... I'll just send you a DM later with what the uh, where the name came from. But anyway, uh, Lucy <laughs> took a dream role with great passion. She performed so well that the unit managers put her forward to be interviewed for a local newspaper as the poster girl for the neonatal unit's proposed three million pound fundraising campaign. The poster girl, mm-hmm. and this is where the now infamous photo of her holding up a baby's onesie or a sleep suit was taken. Early the following year, in 2013, when staff members of the unit were asked to write staff profiles themselves, Lucy wrote the following. In my role, I am responsible for caring for a wide range of babies requiring various levels of support. Some are here for a few days, others for many months. I wholeheartedly enjoy seeing them progress and supporting their families. So yeah, this this next bit of information, I actually had to enter my bank details for a free trial of a, a subscription to The Telegraph for this. And as I was saying to Tom and Dan just before we started, uh, they don't let you cancel online. I have to call an 0800 number to get cancel my bloody free trial. Makes me so uh, happy. It's, it's, I'm fuming. I am fuming. I'm not very happy about that. But um, it also became a seven-step process for me to eventually get to the article I wanted to read. It was they kept trying to flog me extra stuff like Ryanair. But anyway, apparently Lucy Letby loved to salsa dance. Uh, so yeah, despite her very vanilla or beige or average social life and high focus on her career and studies, Lucy had a small group of friends that would always make time to regularly attend salsa dance classes. 
uh, and she would go one evening every week uh, before returning to her cats back at home. Her social media would also uh, start to become more animated. Um, she would begin to post photos enjoying cocktails with friends, messing about on dance poles, and even pulling funny faces for the camera. And there's even a, a photo of her on a dance floor holding a packet, an empty packet of uh, Nobby's nuts over her tummy. Which oh. is just, you yeah, have not seen anything like that before. So yeah, special shout out to The Telegraph for that exclusive information. Uh, a note to make on Lucy's home as well. Uh, so Lucy's home has been described as a Disney-inspired, colourful, fairy light adorned and very childlike home. Her bedroom in particular has been the focus of a lot of people's attention. Uh, so her bed was always covered in cuddly toys, including Winnie the Pooh and Eeyore. And she also had figurines of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs on her windowsill. There were two framed prints of feel-good slogans, such as Shine Bright Like a Diamond and Leave Sparkles Wherever You Go that were placed on her walls. And finally, she would regularly sleep beneath a duvet with a princess-style written motif sweet dreams see a big sweet dreams across her duvet and a lot of people kind of say it's, it's almost as if you were stepping into a, an entire house belonging to a teenage girl um, but then we've we've had it in other cases before what was it the christine chubuk case where she had a very sort of she redecorated her home to be very vibrant pink and yellows i mean particularly this one it kind of let it kind of yeah it adds to the innocent like twee kind of life she was trying to portray you do question whether or not like she's playing up to the whole still being a little girl to her parents or something weird like that but is is she in some way i don't know it, but it is odd i mean to be fair when i heard all the different podcasts talking about this and then i saw the pictures myself it didn't look as drastically kiddish as yeah. what the other ones imply it's it's got fairy lights which i mean i think we all have a bit fairy light here and here and there uh but and like like teddies and stuff like that like it's not it's not wild to think someone might have a teddy on the bed um but yeah it's it is a, it is an odd one she, she it fits in with the character we're describing quite very vanilla and beige and just like she's kind of person you know you'd imagine having live laugh love on the on the wall no offense to anyone that's on the wall but um it's that kind of decor yeah i i'm the same as you i think when i read this and, and heard what to expect and then looked at the photos i was like oh I was a little bit underwhelmed. Like, mm. I can't even really see the teddies. Not that that's what we're looking for. I can't even see the teddies. <laughs> In other rooms of the house, Lucy had signage and wall art that stated, friends are just angels in disguise. Uh, truer words have never been said. Uh, as well as one, I, I assume this was maybe a kitchen one, maybe living room, maybe she's got a minibar somewhere, that said, happy Prosecco season. And pinned on her fridge, she had two handwritten cards, one that said number one godmother awarded to Lucy Letby and another that said happy birthday mummy that was signed to be from her cats, Tigger and Smudge. I think it was it was her mum who, it's been said it was her mum who actually did that, which makes it slightly less or slightly more palatable rather than thinking that she wrote yeah, that her herself. Her own handwriting. Yeah, because yeah, that With was the left hand, the Tigger and Smudge. Yeah, um... But yeah, it's, I mean, we'll, we'll get into there's There's a lot of other things I found out of house, which are far more alarming than this. But yeah, it, it's still just kind of a bit like, ugh, I don't know, cringe inducing, isn't it? 
Three years of this cycle continue and Lucy regularly offers to work overtime. She also regularly attends her salsa classes, she joins a gym and continues to socialise with her small close-knit group of friends of whom she considered her own little family. And yeah, I think I think Tom's right. Obviously she studied away, she, stu- she went to uni away from home, she's now got her own place um, away from home. She seems to struggle to make this kind of detachment from her parents from becoming an adult i guess is 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 an interesting way to frame it because her parents would regularly visit and stay over but she would still have a very childlike environment away from home still it's yeah it's it's an interesting one in early 2015 lucy eventually qualifies to work with infants who require more intensive care and this qualification pleased lucy very much who appeared to want to do as much as she could for the hospital and work with those most vulnerable having told colleagues that she found non-intensive care work to be boring and sought the more hands-on, intricate action that the intensive care patients would provide. But this would prove to be a horrific elevation of her power and the trust placed in her. So at this point, on the surface at least, Lucy was just like many other young people in the UK at the time, navigating life's twists a step at a time, had a solid relationship with her family, had a small but close group of friends and was dedicated to her career. However, beneath the facade of being this incredibly friendly, incredibly helpful nurse, much like we saw with Beverly Allett, a much more sinister demeanour was brewing. Lucy's career and behaviours would take a dark and dramatic turn over the years with numerous psychologists suggesting that, in having been at the centre of her very hands-on parents' universe for so long, to now living away from them, she had developed covert narcissism, also known as vulnerable narcissism. Typical signs for a covert narcissist include attention-seeking, manipulation, a lack of reliability, superficial charm, Ben, is this your LinkedIn? A desire or need to break people's boundaries, as well as an exaggerated sense of self and self-importance. Hire me. I mean, scarily, I do know people that do tickle out those boxes, to be fair. Mm. Um, a covert narcissist may, for some reason, feel wronged or mistreated by someone else in their life and become vengeful or seek to punish them as a result. They develop a pathological desire for attention and sympathy. For example, if a narcissist believes that their partner is not giving them enough attention, they may start flirting with someone else to make their partner jealous. Or if Lucy felt as though her parents, or as a ripple effect, the parents of her patients, were not giving her enough attention, she may act out or behave in a way that would swiftly and very brutally changed this. And, as we have mentioned, she was regularly regarded as average, vanilla and beige by many, and this assumption that she was average would allow her to fly very much under the radar. And it is here that we move to the timeline of the Lucy Letby case. 2013 to 2015. Over this two-year period, Letby threw herself into her career. Having been single her whole life and now entering her late 20s, Letby decides to dedicate herself entirely to her work, regularly picking up overtime to the point that she would occasionally work 60 and 70 hour weeks. As a result, she even moves to work on night shifts for the hospital, and in her spare time she continues to look after her cats and keeps in close contact with her parents as well as her small group of friends. During this time, Letby becomes known for her dedication to the neonatal unit and to the babies under her care, which initially garners her praise from her colleagues and supervisors, as well as the family members of those in her care. One of her patient's mothers from Buckley, North Wales, would later explain how Letby had helped her after she gave birth to her premature son. I could not have asked for a more caring and helpful nurse than Lucy. She helped me give my son his first bath. All I can say, from my experience, is that she was a great nurse. 
However, this would all change drastically in the summer of 2015, when the infant mortality rate in the neonatal unit seemed to rise quite sharply, seemingly out of nowhere. So a note to make here as well is that, and it's kind of unique to this case, uh, the judge, who obviously we will later reference in our timeline, ordered a banning of the publication of anything that could lead to the victim's identities being discovered, including any mention of the family members. Uh, this order also included the survivors of this case, uh, and that will go at the moment all the way through to their 18th birthdays, uh, many of whom now are living with profound disabilities as a result of these attacks. So we will refer to these victims in our timeline in chronological order, from child A all the way through to, tragically, child P. The evening of the 8th of June, 2015, Lucy Letby, who by this point had been working at the Countess of Chester Hospital for three years, embarked on a series of actions that would change her life, as well as the lives of many hundreds of people, forever. On this evening, child A, who had only been alive for a few days after having been born six weeks prematurely along with his twin sister, child B, is resting in Nursery 1 on the neonatal ward. Nursery 1 was typically reserved for the most poorly babies. At 8pm, the newborn is handed over to the care of Letby, who is just starting her night shift. And 30 minutes later, the paediatric registrar clocks off and goes home for the night. 26 minutes later, Letby calls for a doctor to come to the incubator in the nursery, who she informs that the condition of child A is, quote, deteriorating rapidly. Despite the medical team's attempts to save his life and later revive him, child A passes away just 30 minutes later early an hour and a half into Letby arriving for a night shift. Doctors attending the scene stated that child A developed an unusual blue and white smear on his skin after collapsing, which they said had never been seen before, though it can sometimes be caused when excessive levels of air forcefully enters the bloodstream, meaning that child A was highly likely to have been intentionally injected with air. As well as this, another nurse that was on the same shift said that when the baby had started deteriorating, she saw Letby standing over the infant's incubator, where she seemed to be hesitant for a good few minutes, not intervening to try and save the baby. This nurse had to intervene herself when she realised that child A was not recovering under Letby's care. The paediatric registrar returns the following morning. So the paediatric registrar is essentially someone in a highly skilled position who helps to oversee the ward as well as being responsible for the general paediatric care developed to those on it. And in returning that morning, she recalled being absolutely shocked when she was informed of child A's passing. She would later testify on the newborn's condition. I remember this came as a big surprise. It was completely out of the blue and very upsetting. He showed no signs of any problems throughout the day. He was handling really well. I had no concerns at all for him or his twin sister when I left for the night. Letby finishes her shift the following morning with a handover, before going back to her home, alone. Once in the solace of her house, despicably, phone records prove that Letby searched for child A's parents on Facebook. So to expand on that a little bit, I've heard different theories from people why she would do that. It's to note as well, with babies going into this kind of care, you are spending a lot of time with nurses, you do create bonds there, and it could be looked at, you know, you want to make sure, check on the family, seeing if they're okay. But obviously this gets a lot darker when you start to think, is there other reason she's doing it? She's trying to see, you know, see the actions of what she's done and kind of like gloat and, and, feel, and feel smug within that. But um, yeah, child A apparently was on the mend, doing really well. And then suddenly this turn happened and the doctors didn't really make much of the blue smear at, at the beginning. It was something they later would kind of put piece together to try and create this whole picture. June 10th, 2015. 28 hours after murdering child A, Letby has his twin sister, child B, firmly in her sights. The twins' parents, understandably devastated by the loss of their baby boy, had spent the entire day in the ward's nursery with child B, but they were persuaded to go home and rest late into the evening. 
Which, yeah, I feel like that was a pattern that also occurred with the Beverly Alec case. I'm sure that the parents were just spending so... And, and imagine being in that situation as well, the amount of worry and energy that that must um, take from you, um, you know, wanting to be there for your newborn. And, yeah, given assurances, everything will be fine. Obviously, they've been through the trauma of the previous night, but, you know, we're looking after your child. And, unfortunately, this would give another window of opportunity to let be. So a few hours after Letby had started her night shift, she is alleged to have regularly checked in on the baby girl during this time, before eventually, shortly after midnight, she fed child B. And just 25 minutes after having been fed, the baby collapses and her condition begins to deteriorate rapidly, much like her twin brother. The same blue and white spots and smears begin to appear on the girl's body, once again suggesting that air had been forcefully injected into the bloodstream. Fortunately, arriving doctors are able to resuscitate and save child B, with Letby watching from a distance. She returns home the following morning and once again searches for the parents of child A and child B on Facebook. And meanwhile, tests on child B conclude that she showed loops of gas-filled bowel in her system, essentially meaning that uh, an x-ray could, sh could show you that there was more air or oxygen in, in her system than was necessary or natural. 14th of June 2015, so just four days later, Letby is once again looking to claim a second victim. Child C was a boy born seven weeks prematurely, weighing a mere one pound and 12 ounces, or 800 grams. Despite his early birth, he was said to have been in a good condition, and this is where things get very unsettling. Despite not being the baby's designated nurse, Letby was seen multiple times checking in on the newborn. Which again, I mean, th that in a way, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. If you're in a hospital, you'd want to be checked in on regularly by a nurse. But yeah, there's a slightly more sinister aspect here. And she was also observed standing over his monitor at the time that his alarm eventually went off. Child C suddenly collapses and dies just minutes after staff attempt to revive him and it is later revealed that air was injected directly into the baby boy's stomach, rather than his bloodstream. Letby's shift leader recalls having to instruct her to return to her designated patient several times throughout the night shift, and also had to go out of her way on more than one occasion to remove Letby from the nearby family room, which is where the boy's parents were located. And yeah, as Tom said, the, the nurses were very sociable with the parents and with the family members, but this moment was just a very strange time for Letby wanting to be near them. Uh, and obviously she was trying to get near the boy's parents shortly after child C had passed away. And yeah, that, that will become a theme. She does love to be around people grieving. Uh, the parents would later go on to speak of a nurse who they believe was Letby coming into the family room with an empty ventilator basket and quite bluntly asking them, you've said your goodbyes, do you want me to put him in here? Which is, yeah, hideous. Yeah, yeah. I mean, weirdly, you'd like to think that was Letby rather than just any other nurse saying that, but... Um... Yeah, I mean, like you said, the idea of you going, being a nurse and going to look after people that weren't technically your patients, you would have thought it would be a good thing. And that's a positive, but it's just when you paint it with this other, with obviously what we know in hindsight is it makes it feel very, very dark indeed. Um, the thing about Letby was she was considered by her staff as being a safe pair of hands and she was a good person when, you know, when panic was happening, she was someone that's quite calm and able to kind of carry out actions calmly. So they were quite her being there when these things were happening was kind of seen as a positive because she was there to help and assist. But um, good in a crisis, that's not it's not good in this case at all. No, on the twenty second of June, in the early hours, let B having killed two babies and attempted to kill another within a period of six nights, is once again 
on night duty on the neonatal ward at the Countess of Chester Hospital. Possibly feeling invincible, she once again sets her sights on another victim, Child D, a premature baby girl, with whom Letby had apparently been, quote, hovering around the parents of for many hours before she decides to act. Shortly after 2am, the newborn's condition completely collapses. She goes in and out of consciousness two more times shortly thereafter, with those trying to save the baby girl noticing a distinct blue and white discoloration of the skin. Shortly after the third collapse, Child D passes away, having only been born 36 hours prior. A post-mortem x-ray conducted the following morning reveals a considerable line of gas directly in front of the baby's spine, suggesting the air had once again been intentionally and forcefully injected into the bloodstream. At the same time, an internal review is conducted by Dr. Stephen Breary, the head consultant on the neonatal unit, as well as Alison Kelly, the Director of Nursing and Deputy Chief Executive of the hospital. The pair begin to look into a higher than expected number of infant deaths in the neonatal unit in quick succession and under dubious circumstances. Suspicions begin to grow as it emerges that Letby had been on shift during all the deaths, but concrete evidence remains elusive. As a result, the review deems that the deaths occurred as a result of medication errors and no further action is taken against Letby. It's worth noting that if the three deaths had been deemed as serious incidents involving unexpected deaths, which was definitely an option, then a full-blown investigation would have been launched, and Letby would have potentially been apprehended or suspended at the very least. With suspicions rising, Letby returns to her regular duties for the next month. Yeah, so obviously I don't know how wide the margin is for medication errors, but yeah, that's, it's haunting to know that if they had deemed it as some sort of um, serious incident or an unexpected death, then yeah, a, a, a proper investigation would have been launched immediately, which, yeah, unfortunately it wasn't. On the 4th of August 2015, thinking that suspicions have quelled, Letby is intent on striking once again, and this time it doesn't go exactly as she planned. During the late evening, the mother of child E unexpectedly arrives at the neonatal unit in order to bring some milk for her newborn. Child E was born seven weeks prematurely along with his twin, child F. The mother walks into his nursery room whilst Letby is apparently in the process of attacking her child. She observed Letby standing over his body whilst he lay there, bleeding from the mouth and hysterically crying which is, yeah, that's absolutely horrific. And a common uh, phrase here from, uh, from, uh, from Letby would be, trust me, I'm a nurse. And uh, yeah, this mother claimed that Letby responded as follows. She was wanting to look busy, but not actually doing anything, pretending like she was trying to save him. She was just standing there, faffing around and not doing anything to save my baby. You know when it feels like somebody wants to look busy, but they're not actually doing anything. Sadly, the bleeding of child E proves to be fatal, with him passing away shortly after the attack. The cause of death would later be determined as IV air embolism and bleeding from trauma. And there were actually flecks of blood that were found in the baby's vomit, and some parts of his skin also had the blue and white smears. His cause of death is believed to have been an injection of air into his bloodstream, with many believing that the mother walked in whilst Letby was interfering with his nasogastric tube. And yeah, the nasogastric tube is uh, essentially meaning nose to stomach. Uh, nose to stomach tube. If there's any people like me out there that, that didn't know what that meant. So the 5th of August 2015, the very next night, unbelievably no action is taken against Letby despite the mother's pleas. She is allowed to return to work the following night where she once again has her sights set on murdering the twin of one of her victims. 
Child F, the brother of Child E, who had passed away the night before, had been placed in the same nursery as one of the other babies that Letby was caring for. And a few hours into Letby starting her night shift, the parents are advised to go home and get some rest. At 1.54am, less than 24 hours after murdering Child E, Child F suffered a very swift, very unexpected drop in his blood sugar and saw a surge in his heart rate. Thankfully, the child survived and a blood test that was sent off to the Royal Liverpool Hospital later revealed that he had been given an extremely high amount of insulin, to the extent that they were not naturally produced, which meant that it had purportedly been laced in his feeding bag. And yeah, a note on insulin on, on, the, on the unit itself, it was always kept locked away uh, at all times on a fridge next to the nurse's station and no baby that was in the unit or on the ward at that time had been prescribed any kind of need for insulin. So someone uh, had gone out of their way to get out of the fridge and uh, uh, contaminate the feeding bag with the insulin. Yeah, she had to get sign off from two doctors, I believe, to use it. Yeah, you, it's something that is because it's obviously quite dangerous it could be quite dangerous in the wrong hands if you get signed off from two different people to actually be able to use on on a patient and it hadn't been in this case mm. again in the weeks that followed let be search for the parents of child e and child f extensively on facebook as well as other social media platforms and yeah these these parents she seemed to be particularly fixated on those and at around the same time the lead consultant of the unit dr ravi jayaram made it incredibly clear to hospital executives that he was not comfortable with let be working on the unit but these concerns and, and the many concerns that would follow were brushed off and dismissed and he was unbelievably later forced to apologise to Letby after she complained in a letter to officials that the doctor was bullying her. I've been a paediatrician since 1992 and I had never in my career seen anything like this. And actually initially there was a feeling of thank goodness Lucy was on because she's really good in a crisis, she's really good at managing these things. But as time progressed the thought started springing into our heads. Could she be doing something deliberately? We discussed having CCTV put onto the unit. We discussed um, her being supervised one-to-one -one with somebody watching her all the time. We bullied her. Uh, we'd behaved unprofessionally. We'd behaved in ways that were unbecoming to the profession. And then read out a letter from her, which was a, a very aggressive letter from her, basically saying, I'm coming back to work and you have to work with me and I'm going to prove to you that I'm a great nurse and I'm not a killer like you say. And then Tony Chambers finished off by saying, so she's coming back to work and this is the most chilling thing. I'm drawing a line under this, you will draw a line under this and if you cross that line there will be consequences for you. On the 7th of September 2015, a month later, we move on to Child G. Obviously, all of these murders and attempted murders are absolutely harrowing, but this one rings out as some of the most heinous and callous acts from Letby. Child G was the most premature of all the babies in this case. She had been born 15 weeks early and only weighed just over 450 grams, uh, or one pound. The team in the neonatal unit that day was celebrating the 100th day of keeping Child G alive on what was due to be her actual birthday. There were banners on the ward and in the nursery, and the nurses had even made a cake for her parents. Around two hours into Letby's night shift, perhaps becoming jealous of the attention the baby was getting, Letby attacks Child G in the first of what would become a series of three separate attacks over the next three weeks. During the first attack, the baby collapsed, either as a result of the tainted food or air being injected into the bloodstream, or a combination of both. Thankfully, doctors are able to stabilise her and she recovers. Five nights later, and just 15 minutes after Letby had fed her, the baby collapsed once more, 
and again, thankfully, doctors were able to save her. A week later, and again after Letby had been with the baby, she collapsed for a third time. This time, her heart rate and oxygen levels dropped to staggeringly low levels, and the baby also began to projectile vomit. The baby was seen projectile vomiting so significantly to the point that the vomit reached the chair next to the cot, which was something that the nurses and doctors had never observed before. For a third time, doctors were able to save the girl, and it was later confirmed that for the baby to have projectile vomited to such an extent, she would have to be given far more milk than was possible to fit in a feeding tube, posing that theory that Letby had decided to attempt to drown the child after failing twice before. On that, they actually checked the baby um, in terms of the milk and basically what they, the, the amount of milk they advised to give the baby. She still had that amount in her stomach after being sick. So it just shows all the sick that was being, you know, obviously vomited of the milk was actually all additional milk that was given to her and she didn't need. So it just goes to show how kind of force fed she was. It was also noted that Letby had adjusted the child's recorded temperature on observation charts in an effort to try and make it look like the baby had a high temperature. Letby had also turned off the machine that records oxygen levels during the moment of the second collapse. At the time of recording, child G is now eight years old and lives with profound disabilities as a result of these series of attacks. That's the thing. I mean, it, obviously, in hindsight now of knowing what happens in this case, but surely those are big things. The oxygen recording levels system, which is the technical name, I believe, um, being turned off, but also just so many things that are able to be collated that Letby had done here. And I know it's, a tr- it's early on in the trend of attacks, but I... I was very surprised, and I know some some of the um, senior team had become suspicious, but I just thought that was a that was a big red flag there. Yeah, I think I wonder if a lot of those things are, aren't stats or things they look into unless totally necessary. And maybe I think Letby was pretty clever with how she flew under the radar. She knew what she could get away with. She knew what things she could tamper with without being caught caught out. And obviously, she's feeling very uh, like she could do anything at this moment. So it's hard isn't it because obviously yeah. I mean people will be surprised to know it but our medical knowledge is, is fairly lacking but um, yeah she seems to, if you ask yeah from they're reading this written down and obviously with what we know you think how aren't they just looking at that and saying what's going on mm-hmm. especially with people flagging things she's done but as I said she was a well respected nurse and you know in that ward people believe I like, trusted her thought she was you know always on hand had the right attitude you know was doing extra hours you know was always keen to help with that you know the kind of um, the most serious cases uh, yeah yeah I mean that that's a good, a good point as well because at this point she'd been here for three years and and like you said done overtime whenever needed and the, why would you have a question if she yeah. had just started and then this started happening that would be a bit more maybe cause for concern but that and that's yeah and that's something we'll talk about later in the episode but what kind of what was the trigger for this to start happening so yeah. late into a well, not so late into a career but a good few years into her career um because yeah a lot of people still have questions about that so 23rd of october 2015 another month goes by and obviously by this point letby's attacks begin to occur after longer intervals um perhaps indicating that she was aware of the suspicions that were rising around her um she had gone from attacking three babies in six days to attacking one baby a month so yeah it could be perhaps as as tom said her knowing how to fly under the radar knowing what she can and can't get away with but it also could be due to the fact that letby's ward manager conducted a series of internal reviews um, which uh, once again finds that the only commonality was that letby was a constant presence in the deaths and other collapses but they noted that she was there she was trying to help she was making herself available and, and again at this point no one is apart from dr ravi was is too suspicious of her and uh yeah once again 
um, no action is taken against Let Be. So although no action was taken against Let Be, um, it could be also that Let Be's ward manager kind of made these reviews seem quite to be taken quite lightly. Um, she was heard telling staff, you don't need to make a fuss, you don't need to be worried. And again, maybe that made Letby feel slightly more invincible. Child I, a premature female baby, had already collapsed three times in the month of October, often screaming in agony before doing so. And on each occasion, the collapses occurred during the night. On this particular night, the fourth collapse would prove fatal. These attacks would later be described in court as persistent, calculated, and cold-blooded. Child I collapsed close to midnight, with Letby being observed standing by her incubator. She called for help, and when doctors arrived, Letby explained that she felt the baby was going pale. And yeah, this is uh, an interesting observation from Letby because it would have been hard for her to notice that the baby was pale because the lights at the time were almost completely dimmed for the baby to sleep. So when the doctors and nurses arrived to help, they immediately, one of the first things they did was turn all the lights on so they could actually see what was going on. And when they did that, they noted that the baby wasn't breathing at all. The baby was found to have a large volume of oxygen in her stomach, causing significant problems with her breathing, eventually to the point that she died. Later in Letby's shift, she approached the grieving parents of child I and asked them if she would like her to bathe the baby. And apparently, obviously, they, they said, yes, please. She would then uh, go on to bathe the deceased baby, but they noted that she had a large smile on her face when doing so, and also bizarrely offered to take a photo of the baby for them, which I don't know if that... It, I, I don't know enough to say if that is a typical thing to offer. Yeah, because when... Yeah, I, I was thinking that, but I think... I think you would offer that, you know, say, would they like to take one? I think maybe her taking the, one, the photo is the odd bit there yes and we'll go on to obviously things we know after things we know now as well with certain things she keeps but um yeah i think it's bizarre to yeah for her daughter i think it's obviously her grinning whilst bathing the baby is horrible but yeah the Mm. that's the opera there i think let would then go on to send a sympathy card to the parents of child i on the day of her funeral a funeral of which Letby had informed her colleagues as well as the girl's parents that she wished she could have attended. The handwritten sympathy card is worth mentioning because Letby, at the time of uh, writing this uh, sympathy card, decided to take numerous photos on her own phone of this card, uh, and the note said the following. There are no words to make this time any easier. It was a real privilege to care for your baby and get to know you as a family. A family who always put their baby first and did everything possible for her. She will always be a part of your lives and we will never forget her. Thinking of you today and always. Sorry I can't be there to say goodbye. Lots of love. Lucy. Letby would later search multiple times for Child Eye's mother on Facebook, including on the morning of the funeral. Which, as as Tom said, we'll we'll get into it a bit more in the episode, but she was very active on uh, looking for the victim's parents on, on social media, but she would never engage with them, just look at their page, which is, yeah. Yeah, even on the on the anniversaries of the deaths, which I think yeah. is, is particularly sinister, because you think, you could say, you know, obviously they make friendships and they, you know, want to check in and make sure they're all right and, you know, see posts like that, which, are, you know, people deal with, like we always say, people deal with grief in different ways. And obviously um, nurses also do, do grieve for their patients, you know, it's not unheard of. So... But then when it comes to actually looking on the anniversary of the death and stuff like that, it becomes the feeling like, yeah, that's particularly odd. On the 26th of November 2015, child Jay was born prematurely and had to have an operation for bowel disorder as a result. But the child was doing well. 
was healthy and said to have been on course to a complete recovery. However, late into the night, she suffered an unexplained collapse when Letby was one of the six nurses working the night shift. Char J suffered two serious problems with her breathing in the night and was moved to a high dependency room as a result. The following morning, her oxygen level dropped so low to the point that it was unrecordable and she went into a seizure. Almost an hour after going into her seizure, Letby gave the baby a glucose infusion. Then minutes later she collapsed again with a seizure and had to be resuscitated with the help of a doctor. An independent medical expert who later reviewed Char J's case said it was of concern and consistent with some form of obstruction of her airways, such as smothering. Fortunately, Char J survived and Letby searched for the child's family on Facebook the next month. The lesser mentioned Child K is one that Letby is not currently accused of the murder of. Child K was found alone in the room of Letby by Dr. Ravi Jaram, who we heard from earlier. Apparently, Letby was assisting the baby with her breathing. However, Dr. Ravi found the baby's breathing tube had been dislodged. A few hours later, her breathing tube was found to have been pushed too far down her throat. The baby was later taken to a different hospital, where she died a few hours later. Dr. Ravi remains convinced that Letby was responsible. Interestingly, and perhaps as a fallout of the staff refusing increased suspicion, Letby would not attack any babies, at least that we are aware of, for the next five months. To this point, she has murdered at least five babies and attempted to murder three others, some of which on multiple occasions. On Christmas Day of 2015, Letby once again searches for the parents of child E and F, one of the twins she had murdered and the other attempted to murder. She seemed to have a particular fixation on both the mother and father of her victims. February 2016 the lead neonatologist, along with two other consultants, including Dr. Stephen Breary, conducted a thematic review investigating the five unexplained deaths and three collapses within the unit. So they were looking for trends, they were looking for shift patterns, obviously was a, a big thing, but they were looking for were there any uh, similarities in the causations and, um, and what they found was to be quite interesting. Their investigation determined that the only common factor in these cases was the presence of Letby. Letby's connection to the incidents is mentioned at a meeting called to discuss the report, which was then subsequently sent on to, at the time, medical director Ian Harvey. Uh, Dr Stephen Breary requested an urgent meeting as a result of his findings, uh, and he wanted to meet with hospital executives to discuss this, but no meeting would take place for the next four months. And that's the thing, they're initially looking for commonalities for these first five murders, and because she is kind of loosely changing her... MO. There was uh, injecting with air, potential smothering, um, the feeding tube. Uh, there were, yeah, you know, she's changing up uh, the way that she's going about things here, which is again why she's been able to evade um, any kind of additional suspicion. Dr. Breary would later give quite a powerful statement about this incident. You could argue all the events from May 2016 onwards were avoidable if they had acted appropriately. If they had responded appropriately to the urgent meeting request in February 2016, then the same would be true from February 2016. I'll always look back on this and think, could I have done something sooner? Could I have pushed hard with the execs? Could I have gone knocking their door down to talk about these sorts of things earlier in the year? And, I suppose, I have to live with those thoughts. But, at the end of the day, I was doing what I felt was reasonable at the time. I thought some of their actions were a little neglectful, in fact, actually quite neglectful, in that time period certainly in the six months from February 2016 onwards. 
So yeah, he, yeah, Doctor Brewery will will come up again in the timeline. But he, as well as Doctor Ravi, were yeah uh, viewed as heroes in this case. But obviously, still has to now live with uh, questioning: could he have done more? And he he's, I think the, that question really should have been laid at the execs that didn't do more um, at the time. So early April 2016, at the request of the neonatal unit's ward manager, Letby is moved from night shifts to day shifts. From this moment onwards, as you probably could guess, no more babies collapse during the night shift time periods. Instead, and this is quite surprising given that surely you would have thought Letby would have an inkling as to why they moved her from night shifts to day shifts, babies now begin collapsing during the day shifts. April 9th, 2016, as it approached midday, two premature twin brothers, child L and child M, suddenly collapsed within an hour of one another. Child L had insulin levels in his system that were completely off the chart, with one nurse noting that they were, quote, at the very top of the scale that the equipment was capable of measuring. Many believe that he was suffering from insulin poisoning, with Letby likely injecting insulin into the newborn's dextrose bag. An hour goes by and Child M's breathing and heart rate suddenly drops drastically, to the point that he very nearly died. He again showed signs of white and blue smears on his body, pointing to the fact that he was likely intentionally injected with air. Fortunately, doctors are able to revive and stabilise both twins, with child M now living with brain damage as a result of the attacks. A lot of people mention the distinct similarities to the earlier attacks on twins, child E and child F, stating that Letby had actually administered twice the amount of insulin to child L as child F had survived a smaller dose. So yeah, I, I think this is a power thing at this point because she's targeted twins before, she's now targeting twins for the second time, but based on what happened in the first attack on twins, she's now increasing the dosage. Uh, and, and yeah, fortunately, they both survive. On the 11th of May 2016, after four months of waiting, Dr. Brary finally gets his meeting with hospital executives, but it does not go how he anticipated. We had a number of meetings with senior management. It was quite clear that uh, they weren't going to budge and uh, they didn't think appropriate to go to the police at that stage. I don't know how you define a cover-up, but um, to us, the the evidence in front of us was quite clear. It felt like they were trying to engineer some sort of narrative, a way out of this that didn't involve going to the police. If you want to call that a cover-up, then that's a cover-up. Executives stated in the meeting that they felt other NHS services may be to blame for the spike in deaths and that there is no evidence whatsoever against Lucy Letby other than coincidence. Which, I mean, that's the thing with this. Like, they could see from the charts who was on shift in all these cases, and it was Lucy, but they hadn't found that, the common phrase, the smoking gun, so to speak, or a mm. clear motive as to why she would be doing this. And as we said, she was working for a few years Pre- previously to this with, with a clean record, squeaky clean, never been in trouble with the police before. So why, essentially? What the big question is, why would she do this? Um, on the 3rd of June, 2016, almost exactly a year after the first murder had occurred, child N, who had been born for a few days, suddenly began screaming shortly after Letby had left the nursery. The newborn boy had haemophilia, a condition that can cause severe bleeding, and many believe that Letby used this as a cover to attack the baby. Child N's father recalled seeing his baby coughing up blood and with blood spatter around his mouth, and arriving doctors noticed an unusual amount of swelling on the boy's neck. It is believed that Letby intentionally thrusted his nasogastric tube against his throat, causing a great deal of internal trauma and difficulty breathing. Fortunately, Child N survived. 
Lepi had searched for child N's father on Facebook before embarking on a holiday to Ibiza with friends. June 23rd and June 24th, 2016. The final known attacks at the hands of Lucy Letby occur on her first shift back from holiday. And horrifically, she had actually WhatsApped one of her colleagues uh, whilst on holiday to say that she would be, quote, probably be back with a bang, laugh out loud. Uh, so child O and child P were two baby boys of a set of triplets. And though the three of them had been born prematurely, they were all said to have been in perfect health and were very much on their way to going home with their parents. In fact, child O was scheduled to go home the following morning. Child O suddenly collapsed during the afternoon of June 23rd and yeah, Letby was observed to have interacted with him. Uh, so when he collapsed, another nurse suggested that the baby should be moved to nursery one, uh, which as we mentioned earlier is where the poorliest babies are kept. Letby apparently disagreed with that decision. Doctors were able to stabilise the boy, but he collapsed two more times over the next few hours, with the third collapse being fatal. A post-mortem review of child O would show that he had a significant amount of gas in his body, far higher than normal, which suggests that he had intentionally been injected with air. Child O also had impact damage to his liver uh, that was said to have been not too dissimilar to the impacts caused by car crashes. Um, so it's, 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 it's not clear how or if Letby had inflicted this trauma to the baby. Um, it was clear that um, obviously she had intentionally injected the air, but in terms of the impact to the liver, it's still not exactly clear how that had happened. Doctors noted in this case, as well as many of the others, that the baby should have been responding better to the revival attempts if it was more of a natural collapse. However, they were not to have known at the time that air had intentionally been injected into the baby's systems. Letby was observed watching the resuscitation attempts by the window of the nursery. Just 13 minutes after child O had sadly passed away, Letby was feeding one of his twins, child P, who was also expected to be going home with his family in the coming days. Child P had been born a few days before child O, but was said to have been in very good health. Not long after Letby had fed him, child P suddenly collapsed. Arriving doctors noticed that his diaphragm had been completely shattered and that he was not responding well to revival attempts. Doctors then made the decision to transfer him to a nearby hospital, where, in front of a large group of medical professionals, Letby asked, He's not leaving here alive, is he? Before they could transfer him, child P sadly passed away. Letby, at her third attempt, had finally managed to murder two twins. A post-mortem x-ray would once again reveal a large amount of gas in his system, suggesting that he too had been injected with air. At the parents' and other consultants' requests, uh, basically the parents of, of the triplets stated that they believed Nurse Letby was a mortal danger to their one surviving child. The third baby of the triplets was taken to a different nearby hospital by paramedics who had just arrived, um, planning on transferring child P, obviously uh, before child P had died. Uh, when this was all going on, Letby had texted a doctor saying that she would, quote, be watching both child P and the other triplet like a hawk. And when the doctor asked how she was coping, she said, I'm okay, just don't want to be here really, hoping I may get new admissions. Which is, yeah, which is just uh, horrific. That evening, Dr. Stephen Breary phones the hospital duty executive, Karen Reese, to say that Letby has to be removed from the neonatal unit immediately. 
Uh, Karen Reese, uh, an interesting figure. She would not really go on to give out too much information uh, and she wouldn't do very many press interviews. She bizarrely insisted that Letby was safe to work and even goes as far as to say that she is happy to take responsibility if anything happened to any other babies when Letby was involved. At this point, the neonatal unit went into somewhat of a frenzy. These murders were said to have been a huge tipping point to almost all of the staff working in the unit. The twins' deaths were not only incredibly sudden, but they were also incredibly brutal. So yeah, there seemed to be a lot more physicality to these ones in particular. And many were quick to make the correlation that this was Letby's first shift back after almost two weeks away on holiday. These concerns were raised immediately to senior management and Letby was eventually removed from duty and transferred to an administrative role in the hospital's risk and patient safety office. Collapses of newborns on the unit stopped the moment that Lucy was transferred. End of June 2016, the hospital's executive directors decided to hold a meeting to discuss whether or not to involve law enforcement. By this point, seven unexpected deaths had taken place within the unit and an additional six collapses had occurred. The executives believed that any indications of Letby's involvement were, for the most part, completely coincidental, and they even suspected certain doctors wanted to go on a witch hunt against Letby. As well as this, the executives were concerned about potential harm to the trust reputation resulting from a police inquiry. As a result, they ultimately opted against contacting the police, despite Letby being the only member of staff who was on shift for all 13 incidents. Which you would have thought, like, if it was two, you might be like, Mm. 13. Um... An investigation into Lucy Letby would shockingly not be launched for another nine months. In that time, Letby filed a formal grievance to the hospital for having been transferred from the neonatal unit and accused doctors and other nurses of bullying her. Unbelievably, executives and board members of the hospital agreed with Letby and even went as far as supporting her on the return to the neonatal unit and assuring Letby in a meeting that she brought her parents to that the doctors and nurses who they agreed with bullying her without any evidence would be dealt with internally and she would be protected from these allegations. The Chief Executive Tony Chambers even made all of the doctors and nurses send written letters of apology to Letby in early 2017. March 2017. The consultants that had been made to write letters of apology to Letby were still adamant that she was responsible for the deaths and attacks on the neonatal unit. They took advice from their regional neonatal lead, who recommended that more investigation was required. As a result, 22 months after the first murders, they contacted and subsequently met with the Cheshire police the following month on the 27th of April. At this point, Letby was due to return to the neonatal ward on the 3rd of May, so yeah, literally a handful of days later, so they knew that time was very precious in this incident. As a result, Cheshire police launched Operation Hummingbird, and the hospital, via their executive team, also released a statement publicly announcing the involvement of the police. So yeah, at this point it could be argued the executives very much didn't want a police investigation going on in their hospital, so their statement was quite boldly uh, claiming that they were doing this in order to, quote, seek assurances that enable us to rule out unnatural causes of death. And as a result of the ongoing investigation, Lucy remains working in the hospital's risk and patient safety office. So yeah, she was she was due to come back to the ward um, uh, a few days away, and because of this investigation now, she's asked to stay uh, in the administrative role. Senior investigating officer Paul Hughes would later say at a press conference. The initial focus was around the hypotheses of what could have occurred. So generic hypotheses of it could be natural occurring deaths, it could be natural occurring collapses, it could be an organic reason, it could be a virus. And then one of the hypotheses was that, obviously, it could be inflicted harm. 
3rd of July 2018, Lucy Letby was arrested for the first time by police at her home in Chester, and she was arrested on the initial suspicion of eight counts of murder and six counts of attempted murder, following a year-long investigation as part of Operation Hummingbird. So there is footage of this arrest where Letby complains that she has just had knee surgery uh, when she's made to sit in the back of an unmarked police car. Um, she's quite, yeah, she's she's kind of... She does look quite startled, but I don't know if that's just how she looks. It's hard to explain. I think it's a, yeah, it's, it's available online, so it's definitely worth a look. But she's very quiet and very like kind of. It's a word I often use describing certain people, uh, quite victimy, um, in terms of just like very like, and like oh, and like everything's about her, and she's like oh, woe is me. She doesn't react to as if a per- she doesn't react to me as a person who has been wrongly arrested. She's kind of walking as if, as if a, a child was sulking. Like, sort of very slow walk, head down. I mean, even her clothes look quite childlike, I'd say. But I, I don't know. It just seems to be like, in her head, she's like, immediately makes it about her. Doesn't ask questions, really. She's just like, okay, I'm getting in the police car. I'm getting arrested. But it, it's not... If you've been accused of such a heinous thing, because she knows what she's been arrested for, mm-hmm. you think you'd be like, you know, a lot more what's going on, like... This can't be happening. Not just, yeah. oh, my knee's a bit sore. Can you put the, can you put the chair a bit forward? Yeah. yeah, and it's when she first opens the door as well, she's like, oh. Yeah. Like a little bit. Chimpanzee of, that. Yeah, um, monkey knees. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so they've got her in the back of the car now and they're going to take her to the local station um, under police custody for questioning. And it's here where things get very, very interesting and, and quite unsettling. So the police now begin to, well, whilst interrogating Lucy, uh, they also now start to search her house. Yeah, even the interrogation audio is just, oh, oh, um, um, it's just so like, I don't know, trying to trying to sound like butter wouldn't melt innocent and just, oh, I don't know. Da, 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 da. It just seems mm. she's cooperating in terms of answering questions. She's not just doing no comments, yeah. but she's not, you know, it's just like very nothing he answers. Yeah. It's like it's like if you ask Dan how he's doing, it's just a very like <laughs> copy and paste answer, you know? Can you shut your door, Tom? Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> Did you have any concerns that there was a rise in the mortality rate? Yes. Okay, so tell me about that. What concerns did you have? I think we don't just notice as a, as a teen in general this this time that this was a rise compared to previous years. They told me that there have been a lot more deaths and that I've been linked to some deaths there a lot. I thought, yeah, when you were doing Letby just then, I, that sounded a tiny bit like your Diana. I got very confused. I mean, you do have a crush on both of them, but um, no, what? No, okay. Everyone assumed as well that I would like Giordando because of the yeah, Diana she's... resemblance, yeah. but no, no, no. One princess. A huge amount of evidence was gathered at Letby's home, including multiple diaries, shopping bags full of 257 hospital handover sheets that were found stuffed under her bed. Many of which included the details of babies and families she had murdered and/or attacked and a number of very bizarre post-it notes. Letby's mobile phone and computer would also later be taken as part of the investigation, which proved that she had extensively searched for 11 families of the 13 victims. The really, truly bizarre thing about this, she knew that the investigation was ongoing, mm-hmm. yet she still kept all these things in her house. Yeah. Which is either complete arrogance, or I don't just, or she just can't 
think to not have these items. It's not like she's hidden them well. She stuffed them in the bag and put them under her bed. Mm. But like, it, these things she's taken as well, they're, they're not, um, shouldn't leave the hospital. They, they are confidential items which shouldn't leave the hospital. So there's that. But also it's just like, um, it's, it's just a tr- is it just a trophy? Well, that I was going to say, yeah, that to me seems like just too many trophies. Um, yeah. That, yeah, I mean, she's taking photos of sympathy cards and she's tried... It's like Real uh, Madrid. It is a bit, yeah, it's a bit. But I think, yeah, I mean, even, I mean, there were 257 handover sheets. Not all of them were linked to attacks or murders. So why why then has she got all the other ones? I, I, I could... Yeah. <clears throat> It's very strange. It casts doubt on though on why we should have the other ones, doesn't it? Make you would make if you were working for the police, you would then go, "Why are these here? Let's look yeah. into. Is, did anything happen to these babies as well? Like it's just, or was she keeping others to make it look? I, was, I say less suspicious, but wa- water down, yeah, yeah, to filter over the other ones. You know, not quite a needle in a haystack, of course, but um, yeah, um, I don't know. It's very strange. It is very strange. Um, Detectives and forensic experts gather additional evidence, including medical records, witness testimonies, and surveillance footage from the hospital. There are thousands of exhibits in the investigation. 16,571, which is a a lot, of which were not even entered as evidence, and some of the items were themselves thousands of pages long. So yeah, very... um, Like we said before... A lot of it is to do with people thinking it's coincidence her being there, but there's a lot of evidence there that's like, you know... Highly incriminating. Yes. Uh, Letby would be bailed by her parents and then re-arrested on two separate occasions in the following weeks as the police investigators need more time to analyse their evidence. Letby's diaries were found to contain what appeared to be a code of coloured asterisks and marked significant events that lined up with the timeline of the investigation. Which, yeah, that, even that, it's like... I guess if you were trying to defend her, so basically in her diary, there's little asterisks on the dates where, you know, either the deaths would happen or resuscitations with these colour codes. It's like, you could argue, like, if you're, it's a diary and you're just, just kind of like saying this day, we had to deal with this, like, you could this say... night was my salsa lesson. Yeah, it could be, yeah, exactly. It could be codes. Yeah. If you had codes for everything, you yeah. might be like, okay. But it also, with everything else tied together, it does just seem like, you know, this is like a, re- a red letter day. This is like a, a day when I, you know, I killed someone. Um, further investigation into the post-it notes also proved to be highly incriminating. One note stated, and we should point out that her writing is quite erratic and it goes horizontally as well as vertically. So some of the sentences may overflow slightly and sound a little bit odd. So basically she's written her notes. She, she's writing, you know, as you normally would have note, but then she writes big words going uh, vertically down across as well. So sometimes you think you're reading one sentence and a random word appears, but it's going, it's going, it's very just higgledy piggledy. I'd like to say. There are no words. I am an awful person. I pay for that every day. I can't breathe. I can't focus. I am overwhelmed with fear. I should kill myself right now. I haven't done anything wrong. Police investigation. Forget slander discrimination. It's all getting too much. It's taking over my life. I feel very alone and scared. What does the future hold for me? How can I get through it? How will things ever be like they were? I hate myself so much for what this has done. I don't deserve to live. I am evil. I did this. I killed them on purpose because I couldn't take care of them. I'll never marry or have children. I'll never know what it's like to have a family. I killed them. I'm not good enough. The world is better off without me. I don't deserve mum and dad. Despair, panic, fear, lost, hate. Why me? I am evil. I did this. 
so yeah, I mean, you couldn't ask for more of a, you know, evidence really. Uh, the defence on this, which I imagine would be hard, uh, but they basically would go on to kind of say she. This was after she was accused of things, and she knew it was getting investigated, and she started, you know, to, to question herself and be depressed, and basically, you know, she was right and all this is just kind of a way to vent and release that and um it was yeah it was just showing how much pressure was put upon her but i i think that's a bit of a weak way if uh, i don't know how you would even try to justify writing that if, if you if you haven't done it i mean especially if an investigation mm-hmm. is ongoing and you leave that in your house it seems a bit uh bizarre to me yeah, oh, absolutely. And, def- and when we get onto the trial, what when she, at the time of writing this post-it note and the many other notes and diaries that she kept, the text messages that she was sending friends and colleagues kind of completely contrast uh, this particular mood. In March of 2020, almost two years after her arrest, Letby was placed on an interim suspension by the Nursing and Midwifery Council. On the 11th of November 2020, almost two and a half years after her first arrest, Letby was charged with eight counts of murder and ten counts of attempted murder. She was denied any possibility of bail at this time, so her parents couldn't help her out. Letby denied all 22 charges against her, instead blaming the deaths on both the hospital hygiene and what she deemed unsafe staffing levels. Due to the sheer volume of evidence gathered as well as delays to the court as a fallout of COVID-19, Letby's trial would not take place until October of 2022. So, her saying blaming the hospital hygiene and unsafe staffing levels, yeah, the, the prosecution would be like, did you ever uh, raise these concerns and mm. what what exactly don't be like just vague with it what is the specific concern you have about that and she wasn't really able to say much about it so though these deaths are happening because the hospital hygiene is, is bad and, and there's unsafe staffing levels you, you would highlight that you wouldn't just wait until it's got to this stage you go oh yeah no it's happening because of that Oh, I'm, so yeah it's, it's very weak again from her we're condensing what was a nine-month trial into a few paragraphs here but there are a great number of articles documentaries and podcasts about the trial itself if you wish to do a little deeper dive into it in all the niches and intricacies of the trial itself um, i mean this way it was this the longest trial that's ever been in the uk isn't it so i mean we have had to condense it right down 10th of October 2022, now aged 33, and eight years on from her first attack, the trial of Lucy Letby begins. Letby's parents, as well as the victim's families, are all in attendance at Manchester Crown Court. The jury are given information relating to a total of 17 babies, child A through to child Q, which is staggering, just that number. Um, However, four of those victims were later unable to be linked to Letby, and as we mentioned earlier, uh, victims' identities as well as the identities of a number of staff members who gave evidence prevented from being publicly identifiable or reported on in the media. Letby pleads not guilty to the seven counts of murder and 15 counts of attempted murder against her. Letby attended the courtroom with a pink blanket comforter and she sat in the docks, slumped almost like a teenager, regularly holding the blanket to her mouth and nose. Which, so why give her that comfort kind of thing? Like, why, like, why bend to her? like requests there uh, many of the victims testified in the court that Letby would regularly say to them trust me I'm a nurse and it was said that she even said this to the mother of child E who walked in on Letby attacking her baby it was also revealed in the trial that Letby had to be told on many separate occasions to walk away from the family room when parents were grieving when Letby took the stand and asked why she had searched on social media for so many of the victims families she could not give an answer when asked about the very incriminating post-it notes Letby said I felt at the time that if I'd done something wrong I must be such an evil, awful person. I'd somehow been incompetent and had done something wrong which had affected those babies. I don't think you can be accused of anything much worse than that. I just changed as a person. 
my mental health deteriorated, I felt isolated from my friends on the unit. From a self-confidence point of view, it made me question everything about myself. Further analysis to Letby's phone proved that she contacted friends and colleagues by text on the dates of almost all of the murders. But her tone would change very much throughout these different messages. In one message she wrote, How do such sick babies get through and others just die so suddenly and unexpectedly? I think there is an element of fate involved. There is a reason for everything. The next day she would write the following. Work has been shit. It's always me when it happens, but I've just won £135 on the Grand National. Letby's personal and professional life were relayed throughout the trial, and though she had no boyfriend at the time of the deaths, or any to mention throughout her adult life, it was revealed that she had developed a crush on a married registrar at some point after she joined the neonatal unit. So yeah, there's a lot everyone hones in on. She didn't have a boyfriend throughout you know, her childhood, her teenage years, uh, adult life. She was very much, you know, her and it was her and her cats kind of against the world. Um, but um, yeah, they, they I haven't heard anyone say that. They paint a picture of her basically. It's the same way that the journalists, yeah, the same way that the journalists earlier were like, oh, she liked to have her parents around for sleepovers. Mm. They, they just frame anything that could be slight, could could be framed slightly strange. Um, but yeah, they very much make a point of her being single all of her life. Um, but yeah, apparently she had a, a crush on a uh, one of the senior uh, members of staff there that was also married. So the pair would regularly text one another. Uh, they'd go on walks together, go for coffee. And they did on occasion actually go and stay in London together. Uh, and it wasn't for work. So uh, yeah, there's a lot of mystery over this particular relationship. I mean, yeah, there's there's police would find Facebook messages between them go like past 1am. As Ben said, they would stay overnight in London together. They're going there, just those two. I think it's going past friendship. He would uh, give her a lot of attention uh, during this time and always be fighting her, fighting her corner. Uh, but she, you know, there was police found his name written in her diaries with heart, love hearts around it and things like that. So mm-hmm. it, it's to me, I don't think they go and staying overnight in London just as pals. It just doesn't feel yeah. right. I and mean, he's he's a bit older as well, and yet married with kids. It's definitely there's definitely was something more going on there. So when he uh, this individual would testify at trial, this was one of the few times that Letby appeared to become emotional, uh, with the exception of any mention of her uh, her cats uh, in the trial. Some have argued this and stated that she only broke down or only became emotional when talking about herself and the impact that these accusations had on her. With the prosecution uh, basically saying that that was a very telling. Uh, thing for Letby to do. Letby's defence team, as Tom mentioned, really difficult for them to try and defend her based on the evidence uh, and accusations against her. They said that Letby was... A dedicated nurse in a system which has failed. And the prosecution's case was simply driven by the assumption that someone was doing deliberate harm combined with a coincidence on certain occasions of Miss Letby's presence. Clearly, there had been a massive failure of care in a busy hospital neonatal unit far too great to blame on one person. During the sentencing hearing, as well as later on when the verdict was announced, Letby opted to remain in her cell. She therefore did not have to face any of her victim's families to hear the victim impact statements, nor hear the judge's sentencing remarks. She was later provided with a transcript of both. Uh, So yeah, her not attending did cause a massive stir of anger across the country and to some further emphasized uh, their beliefs that she was guilty. 
British PM Rishi Sunak would later state in a press conference that his government would seek to introduce legislation to Parliament that would essentially compel convicted criminals to attend their sentencing hearings by force if necessary or face the prospect of additional time in prison if they do not attend, which that to me makes sense. I wasn't even aware, and this is really ignorant, that they could, they had the option to stay in their cell. Yeah. I'd never heard of that before this trial. Uh, I mean, one thing to note here, which is kind of what they were playing on, which would get her out of doing it as well, they kind of lent them it a little bit, was essentially when she was arrested, she claimed that she basically got PTSD from that experience. Um, and she really lent on that, how it's such a harrowing experience for her. And yeah, she basically, which if you, as I said, if you watch the video of her getting arrested, very timid, gentle arrest. Timid. If anything, the police are not making a scene. They're, you know, they've moved the chair for her, let her in the car. They're not being, you know, hands-on. She's not sort of resisting. They even used an unmarked car, didn't they? So it didn't, you know, make her neighbours wonder what was going on. Exactly, yeah. So I think uh, that really adds to the bit I was saying about, you know, about very victim-y. It seems like, yeah, she's, like Ben said, like very telling that she only reacted to when, you know, her... In her eyes, her boyfriend was there and talking about her cat. Anything that was to her, she reacted yeah. to, but not other things, which obviously was such a distressing case. And if she felt love for these these children that she was, she was caring for and her job was to provide this care and attention for, and the families that she, okay, apparently she was so close to because she had to go check them on Facebook and stuff, but then she's not reacting to hearing all this evidence against it. it, it it's beggar's belief, really, um, regarding that. So, yeah, but the PTSD thing was really, I was like, oh, that is just yeah. madness to me in terms of how I don't see how she could be getting that from that. On the 10th of July 2023, after a nine-month trial, the jury was sent away to deliberate. They returned on August 8th, but the verdict was not made public until August 18th. Letby was found guilty of the murder of seven babies, and she was also found guilty of seven counts of attempted murder on six babies. Three days later, on the 21st of August 2023, Lucy Letby was sentenced to life imprisonment with a whole life tariff. When the verdicts were read, Lucy's mother, Susan Letby, allegedly collapsed in her husband's arms, with one or both of them shouting at the judge and jury, you can't be serious, this cannot be right. And they remain adamant to date that their daughter is innocent. So yeah, I think that's why some people do say this case is obviously very, very raw. Um, obviously, the trial only finished a couple of months ago. Um, but uh, we're going to move on to a bit of aftermath now. And yeah, just like the thing that's that obviously the parents, I don't think any parents can go, oh yeah, I saw that in my daughter. Um, but even some of her friends, I've been said she had a very small social circle. She didn't have like what, like what, loads of loads of pals and stuff. But she was known as the kind of goofy, fun one in their group and was kind of always there for them and she's like the kindest and one of the friends saw on the documentary I watched saying she's one of the kindest people she knows and she's so kind-hearted which I can't ma imagine it if if you got someone where there's been no red flags no signs whatsoever and just out of the blue completely this this um, I think that's why people find true crime so intriguing is is, is the idea of people can be so callous and how do people get to the stage where they are and the morbid fascination within that and it's with Letby as far as we can tell there's been literally no clear reason we're going to go into uh, reasons people believe but even they are such like a a weak justification for any I mean there's no justification ever for this but yeah we'll, we'll, we'll get on to it in the, in the aftermath but yeah I think that's it as well because there are still 
there are still arguments to date over the potential motive. Um, and the thing that froze me is that she was in this role for, for many years before the murder started. Um, and as far as we're aware, there were no incidents in that period of time. So for it to just come out of the blue, yeah, was just very bizarre. And yeah, I think with the, the motives we're going to go through, you could see a combination of several different ones in this case being accurate, but still you can't pin it down to just one particular trigger, one particular incident in her life, or one particular potential uh, psychological disorder. Um, yeah, that's one I really, really... Uh, like honing on in particular Ooh, but yeah I think you're right I think it might be a little bit of a bit of a mixture okay so now uh, some aftermath for you so on the date of the sentencing a BBC special documentary was immediately aired uh, and that was titled Lucy Letby the nurse who killed in terms of a possible motive arguments still do very much rage on um, but we're going to just go through a few of them for you now uh, so the first one is attention seeking disorder and possible histrionic personality disorder combined with psychopathy um, so yeah obviously a lot of her life she had the the sole focus and attention of both of her parents she was an only child her parents um, were very very um, heavy doting. on do yeah very doting Obviously, then when she's moved up north to Chester, maybe after a certain time period, she then started to feel a craving for that attention that her parents had been giving her. But then to contradict that, she still had text messages saying that, uh, you know, her parents, it would crush her if she moved abroad. Her parents still regularly stay over. Yeah, I just think that, that but that's like, she wants sympathy from her friends by going, oh, my parents love me so much and it's going to crush them because I'm like, I'm so important to them. And then it's like, oh, but my parents are so overbearing. They're, it's just trying to get sympathy from every circumstance. I mean, other than from her own words, I, don't really, I haven't really heard too much about the parents in regards to what other people thought felt of their behaviour because everything is through Letby. It's Letby saying they're overbearing or Letby saying this and that. So I haven't really heard about other people saying, yeah, parents were far too involved and far too much because I think with someone who tends to try and make everything about them, the parents would have to be involved because you, if, you if you have a child who's constantly something's wrong, you're going to believe them and want to dote on them and want to try and make them feel better. And now how she's got a skill at making everything about her I think the parents would naturally become more involved because of that yeah it, it was hard to find anything negative said about the parents they moved up to Manchester during the nine month trial they supported their daughter throughout and there were no big incidents in her childhood that you could put a question to the parents well that's a bit odd obviously they took a couple newspaper adverts out in a year but that's that's just proud parents but there was allegedly obviously we talked about all these different handover sheets and whether the parents knew about this or not there were allegedly also some handover sheets found at her parents house so the next one is the desire or thrill from playing god um, which uh, you could allege we saw in the Harold Shipman episode. Some serial killers we've also covered have uh, alleged to have also had the same desires here, but I don't know. I don't know if you didn't... Re There's no other real evidence here for me that backs that one up. No, I don't think... Uh, I, yeah, I think uh, what you're going to go on to, I think it probably more falls under the hero complex rather than playing God. Mm -hmm. So the next one is Munchausen by Proxy, which obviously we, we spoke about at length in our Beverly Allet episode. And uh, the lead detective for the Beverly Allet case uh, said that this case was almost like for like. He even went on to say that it was as if Letby had read the book on Allet in terms of deception and methodology. Obviously, occasionally throughout the murders, she would change it from uh, injection of air to then um, contaminating food bags to then alleged smothering. 
and then obviously forced trauma through feeding tubes. Um, I listened to um, Red Handed's podcast on this and they actually spoke about how Munchausen um, is actually kind of more of a thing you label someone who's done these things afterwards. It's not a case of... It's not a thing that gives you... You're not born that way. It kind of, you do these things and behaviours and then you label it this. Okay. So it's not like, oh, well, she was suffering with that, therefore this happened. So... Yeah, again, I think it doesn't line up with Alec in the same way. Alec, obviously, when she was growing up, she used to wear fake casts. She used to do all these mm-hmm. other things which showed that she herself was always conscious about her health and stuff like that. And it seemed to then she pushed it onto um, the, the, the children within her care and she kind of did it that way. So I think it's slightly different. It differs for me there. This next one is quite interesting. The desire to maintain the attention and eventually win over the affection, although you could allege she had already done this, of the married registrar she had a crush on. So he worked on the same unit. Uh, He was involved in a lot of the resuscitation attempts of some of the babies that were attacked. Um, And it's claimed that she would simply attack these babies to get the doctor near her. So, they, so this is the one I, I, I think there's more to it than most of them um, because I yeah. feel there's messages exchanged. You know, she when she was doubting herself or whatever, he would back her up and say, you know, if you need any statements from me, um, you know, you're a credible nurse, you're one of the best nurses, bigging her up all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, she knew that, you know, if, if, you know, a baby under their care, they'd work together trying to resuscitate. They would be, you know, they'd share their experience together and more time together. She could show him, you know, how you know skilled she was. And then if the baby was to pass, you know, she would get all of um, all of his attention and sympathy, you know, and he'd be picking her up and making her feel better. So she'd be doing these actions to see him during the day. And it, I think she was living in a bit of a fantasy there where she's like, oh, I'm working together with my boyfriend and this mm-hmm. is how it could be. He spent time together. And, and it honestly, like, it, it is the most absurd way of getting anyone's attention, obviously, and the most disgusting way of doing it. But yeah. I think that is probably clear to her. She was never going to be with him because he was married to her kids. But because she hadn't had any boyfriends in her life previously, as far as we can tell, or any kind of love life, I think... Yeah, she felt that she had to, you know, she had to act in order to get his attention, and this was this was the horrible, despicable way that she did it. Yeah, uh, a much, much, much more innocent version of this, or equ- equivalent of this, is like if you worked in an office and you fancied someone that sat near the photocopier, and you kept going over to the photocopier to make copies, even though you didn't need them. More like you're smashing up the photocopier if you get the repairman in, I'd say. Okay. Yeah, that also works. That also works. So the next one, the fear, and it, it kind of links to the above, uh, the fear of never finding love or having a family of her own. So obviously this was kind of mentioned in some of her diaries and also on the post-it note that we quoted from. Um, I think this may be fed into it. I think there's another element of potential jealousy of parents welcoming babies into the world that were on her unit every every day, obviously. She was the thing, first thing is she was still young. Yeah. And she you know in her mind she might have thought that her and that doctor could possibly be together um i wouldn't put it past her um but there wasn't any we haven't got any evidence to show that she wasn't she was unable to have children or anything like that Mm -hmm. which so i don't see well it was that was it the the thyroid condition she had as a youngster but but again that didn't i think that was treated at the time and yeah i mean yeah i think they would have that would have been the headlines we've been seeing a lot would have been yeah. uh, leading down that way. But um, I think even with, yeah, 
I don't know, it's tricky, yeah. Yeah, but I do think her seeing, you know, the, the joy of parents, although obviously um, it's moderated joy in, in the environment of a neonatal unit uh, because you're, you're concerned about the recovery process and um, them being able to eventually come home, but she must have felt either envy or jealousy or, or hatred to do what she did strange to some you, extent. Because you see her bedroom, which we have said, like, we think people have over-exaggerated how... Yeah. You know, twee is but you would say that she's kind of one of those cutesy people where you know where she's written these cards and like rainbow and flowers kind of girl where i think like her being so bitter it just it i think that's why probably people especially who knew her found it found it so jarring is because it's, it's like essentially you got this like brightly colored cake and you cut it and then it's just full of shit yeah. 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 Uh, so the next one we talked about it earlier um is the potential uh, diagnosis of covert narcissism combined with psychopathy. And another one that many people lean towards um and I, I do feel holds some weight is the fact that she may have had the psychological disorder known as hero complex, which essentially is where a person wishes to seek attention, affection or sympathy for solving a harmful situation, making them obviously look like the hero, a situation of which they created themselves. But then at the same time, a lot of the incidents we covered here, she made no effort in the revival process. Yeah, she that's where it falls to... down for me a bit. I mean, Hero Complex, we, there's uh, firefighters out there who start their own fires to put them out kind of thing. Uh, there's cases like that, which you can kind of see they are trying to actually rectify it. But with, with uh, Letby, there's cases where we've mentioned where she's just standing over the baby and not, not doing anything. So and uh, the type of affection or sympathy I get, she is but then i think that's leans to the point i was saying mainly which i which is one of main one i believe it's trying to get the doctor's attention and get his yeah. sympathy i don't think as we said when she's in the docks the only person she really responded to was him yeah and i feel like yeah that's a real key point in this yeah and then finally she had many years of low self-esteem and low confidence which eventually resulted in her uh, jealousy of, of parents as we mentioned on her unit causing her to uh, lash out um but there are many more out there there are lots of different theories um we'll probably what what should we do should we pop a question on the episode to see what people's opinions are we'd love to know what people think uh, the motive was for this case because it's yeah it's it's really hard to pin down to just one particular motive um but and there are so many still out there uh, so one of the one of the very first documentaries i watched about this case in preparation for for the episode as i mentioned at the start I'd been very much ignorant with this case in the sense that out of sight, out of mind, I don't really want to know about this uh, until beginning researching. But one of the very first documentaries I watched had a quote that has literally stuck with me ever since the narrator said it. And that was, this is one of the very, very few cases where every single one of the 13 victims could have been held in the palm of your hand. And yeah, that just... Yeah, which was the, yeah, just absolutely heartbreaking to imagine that. So it's quite horrific to learn about some other cases where medical professionals have used their power and other people's trust and vulnerabilities as a weapon, both in the volume and nature of their crimes. Obviously, you have the infamous case of Beverly Allett and Harold Chipman, who both who we've actually covered um, on the podcast. Allett, commonly known as the Angel of Death, and uh, Harold Chipman as, as Doctor Death. But there are many others, not just in the UK, but around the world, that don't often get talked about. One of the more prominent ones, um, one that we'll definitely cover in the future on the pod, is German nurse Niels Hogel. He is believed to be Germany's most prolific serial killer, having murdered between 85 to 300 of his patients between the year 2000 and 2005 in Oldenburg and Delmenhurst. 
the next one is Ian Patterson, uh, a case that we covered a few years ago on our website, who was dubbed the butcher surgeon and the criminal breast surgeon. Uh, so Patterson worked at a number of different NHS hospitals and private clinics uh, across the Midlands as a breast surgeon, uh, during which time he subjected more than 1,500 of his patients to unnecessary and damaging operations over a 14-year period. Is absolutely vile. Barbara Salisbury, uh, this one is absolutely shocking. Obviously, all of them are, but Barbara was a nurse at Leighton Hospital and Crew. She was charged with attempting to murder four of her elderly patients between 1999 and 2002. Her reason for this was to free up bed space on the ward, as well as a general dislike towards the elderly, which maybe change your line of work, which is not a great trait for someone working in care. Uh, many colleagues on her work ward complained of callous and unprofessional behaviour, which on occasion would involve ordering her sick and frail patients to be intentionally laid down so they would drown in their own lung fluids. It's horrific. Which, yeah, that sounds absolutely hideous. We've also intentionally administrating overdoses of morphine to almost a dozen of her patients. And any staff members that protested would be asked by Barbara, we are in a bed-blocking crisis, why prolong the inevitable? Yeah, that's... That's, yeah, that's horrific. I had no idea about that one. Uh, the next one we have is Charles Edmund Cullen. Uh, so moving over to America, we have Nurse Cullen, one of the most infamous criminal medical professionals on this list. Cullen is believed to have intentionally killed several hundred of his patients during a 15-year period between 1988 and 2003 in different medical centres across New Jersey and Pennsylvania. And despite confessing so far to 40 of them, he's only been convicted of 29 of those. His weapon of choice was a drug called digoxin, which is a medication routinely used to treat people who have either um, heart failure or an irregular heartbeat. Um, but he did this in very large doses. Uh, he would also inject his patients saline pouches with lethal doses of insulin and other drugs. So yeah, kind of similar to Letby towards the end there. But yeah, horrific case. Jessie McTavish, uh, some consider the Scottish nurse to be the original angel of death due to her 1974 murder of one of her elderly patients. She also caused serious harm to three additional patients by giving them illegal and unnecessary injections. Though she was only charged with one murder, she was linked heavily with up to 23 other deaths that occurred under suspicious circumstances in the same area at the same time. Dr. John Bodkin Adams, um, yeah, this case is unbelievable. Some people consider him the original Harold Shipman, as well as being a GP. Bodkin was also a convicted fraudster and suspected serial killer. So between 1946 and 1956, 163 of Bodkin's patients died under suspicious circumstances while they were um, basically stabilised but in comas. Uh, and on top of this, 132 of his total of 310 patients had left Bodkin either money or personal items, including jewellery, cars and clothing, in their wills. His case and subsequent trial at the time was dubbed the murder trial of the century. And he was never actually charged for any of the murders, but he was struck off the medical register in 1957, only to be reinstated just four years later in 1961. And yeah, many people believe he has got away with a ridiculous number of murders there. And finally, though there are many, many more, Colin Norris, no relation, and another <laughs> Scottish nurse believed to have been inspired by Jesse McTavish. Colin murdered at least four of his elderly patients in hospitals in Leeds during a seven-month period between May to November of 2002. Another medical professional with a distaste for the elderly. He is believed to be responsible for an additional six deaths that occurred under suspicious circumstances, again in the same area at the same time. Yeah, what really surprised me is there are so many out there and obviously with it, all of these crimes occurring either in uh, medical facilities or the, the patient's own homes, it, what we find with, with Alit 
Shipman, Letby, it's really hard to then say conclusively that they weren't involved in other attacks or other murders that occurred in those environments. Um, so, yeah, it's, yeah, horrific. Some of those cases are terrifying. But, yes, I think the NHS has taken a bit of a bashing here, so I want to do... Uh, I'll refer to Tom's, Tommy's trivia. <laughs> Tommy's trivia! <laughs> That's terrific! Yes, welcome back. I thought, because, yeah, I mean, obviously... Um, these these evil monsters that we've just listed there all uh, would fall under the NHS or the vast majority of them. Um, so I wanted to just kind of do a bit more of a kind of positive uh, little trivia this week, a bit different to what I usually do. Just kind of some of the, the great things that happen at the NHS as well. And uh, obviously, I don't want people fearing going to hospital <laughs> in the UK. Yeah. Um, but yes, yeah, so uh, the NHS performed a hip replacement for the oldest person to receive one. Can I, I'm going to do a little bit of a quiz with this as well. I've got a lot of stats in here. How old do you think the oldest uh, hip uh, replacement happened? Who do you th- what's the age you think? 104. It's 101. Bloody hell. Um, yeah, and it happened in the West Midlands, and uh, more than 80,000 hip surgeries are performed by the National Health Service each year. Um, most of the NHS workforce is female, um, 77%, which I kind of thought actually being in the hospital a couple of times, like, yeah, that makes sense to me. When you look around the ward or wherever you are, you kind of, yeah, you can see that there's, there's definitely more. Um, females in the workforce every minute the national health service receives 20 calls wow so it's kind of not surprising how you know they're so overworked all the time and more than a million calls were logged over the christmas holidays in 2007 so a bit bit old statistics for you there but million calls over christmas holidays which because a lot of people do get drunk with these stupid things man uh christmas yeah year round as well yeah can i ball fit up here no bet. Um, 50,000. Tinsel. tinsel is tight. Uh, 50,000 emergency journeys are made by ambulances every week. Wow. Which, again, I find it s- staggering. And, uh, no, again, like, I mean, the NHS is terribly understaffed at the moment. And, you know, people reportedly waiting in ambulances outside of hospitals. You just imagine the stress of the calls coming oh. in constantly. And my final little big up to the NHS um, is since the NHS, men and women in the Great Britain have longer life expectancies, um, basically adding 10 years onto the life of, of the UK residents. So um, yeah, just, I just wanted to do, because this is very obviously, and rightly so, a grim case and dour and horrible. And, but I just wanted to do a little bit more of a kind of shout out to the NHS as well. So, yeah, despite my one star reviews bit, which I now feel awful about, um, yeah, big up to the NHS. Yeah. Very lucky. I mean, to you've have got it. family members working directly in it as well, Ben. But yeah. Yeah. Seem to, have, seem to have a hatred for them. But anyway, <laughs> back to the case. Tommy's trivia. <laughs> That's terrific. DCI Nicola Evans, who spent six years analysing Letby as part of the police investigation from 2016 to 2022, described her in one word, which may not surprise you beige. Mm. Could have been average, beige, vanilla. I feel bad because one of our, you know, friends growing up, I used to always describe his girlfriend as beige. I like I like the colour beige. Nothing wrong with that. I don't I don't like how it's a derogatory term. Can't stand it. Oh, I'm really low on the scale of beige. Really? Yeah. It's just it's just I like sort of neutral colours. Is it neutral colour? Just a shit one. <laughs> oh, okay. I don't know what does beige, what does beige look like to you though? Because it could be green. Just like a, beige looks like a little bit of a sort of sandy white. Is that good for my eyes or not? I should clarify if people don't know. Uh, they should know I'm colourblind. Oh, yeah, almond. No, I don't like that colour, but I like beige. And I'm allergic to nuts, so... Um, <laughs> fuck them. We'll get there. Get where? Uh, yeah, so... Uh, <laughs> so, 
So the DCI would say the following. There isn't anything outstanding or outrageous that we found out about her as a person. She was a very average nurse, very beige. She is what you would say is a normal 20-something-year-old. But clearly, there was another side of that that nobody saw and that we have unravelled during this investigation. I do like the idea that she's getting rattled by the amount of time she gets called boring and beige and vanilla. I love yeah. the idea. She's like, no, I'm fucking edgy as fuck. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, the knobby nut, that explains the knobby nuts photo. Um, mm. DCI Evans admitted that they may never know the true reason behind what turned this, I'm going to say it again, sorry, beige. Don't apologise to a, don't apologise no, to a baby apologise to the audience, not to the baby killer, to the audience. And to those that like beige, so I'm apologising to myself here. The true reason behind what turned this beige young nurse into a notorious baby killer. This is completely unprecedented in that there doesn't seem to be anything to say. That explains why she has committed these crimes. Being average has allowed her to go under the radar, and it's allowed her to operate in plain sight. It's allowed her to abuse people's trust because nobody is looking at her because she is normal and average and she doesn't stand out in that crowd. She used that abuse of trust of so many people around her. A lecturer in criminology at Loughborough University, Dominic Dominic Wilmot said he believes some of the nurses' text messages to co-workers, friends and family suggest she wanted to garner sympathy and attention after the baby's deaths. And this perhaps may have been a sole motive behind the series of murders and attempted murders. Mm. What I find with that, it's just, it's... Because I do think, yeah, that's definitely got a massive part to play in this, but there's so many ways in your personal life you can do something like, you know, like, have a shit time on Tinder. You can get sympathy of people. Yeah. Um, that wasn't that wasn't pointed, but um, no, sure, no. Yeah, yeah, of course. So, unfortunately, it's not the most recent data, but it does make for some interesting statistics, and it would be kind of interesting to see where the trends would go to date. There was a study conducted by the Journal of the Royal Society of Medicine between seventeen ninety five. Not that recent, yeah. Not that recent, no. <laughs> Too far. from seventeen. No. From 1795 and 2005. So yeah, the the data is a good 18 years old at the time of recording. However, the study was titled Doctors Charged with Manslaughter in the Course of Medical Practice, a Literature Review. Um, And this study focused solely on doctors uh, to not include nurses or other medical professionals. Their objective was to quantify the number of doctors that were charged with manslaughter um, in that time period um, in the course of legitimate medical practice and to classify cases like mistakes, slips or lapses, as well as violations um, uh, to basically come up with a human error system. And what they found was quite interesting. So in that large time period they found 85 doctors that were charged with manslaughter Uh, the number of doctors charged was very high and spiked in the mid-19th century um, particularly around the world war years um, and has also dramatically increased since 1990 of those 85 doctors 60 were acquitted 22 were convicted and only three of them pleaded guilty and yeah just a reminder that harold shipman beverly allett and lucy letby all pleaded not guilty to the charges uh, put to them. Another interesting uh, and upsetting point for those that obviously understandably say that they feel it's too soon is that in a statement released earlier this year relating to an upcoming Lucy Letby film and or documentary series, uh, actually there may be one 
being created by the Cheshire police. Um, so they uh, had a lot of exclusive content from their investigations and from the arrest and interrogation footage, um, a lot of what you would, I, I guess, call behind-the-scenes footage. And they have released uh, a small uh, video series on Twitter uh, about Operation Hummingbird, uh, and they said the following. Lots has been and will be written and broadcast by others, but we want to bring you our side of the story with this documentary created internally by our communications team and with exclusive access to the investigation team. So the, the use of the word of exclusive here from the Cheshire Police refers to interrogation footage, body cam footage and um, yeah, just general behind the scenes footage, um, which uh, this drew a lot of criticism from other sections of the media, including journalists and filmmakers, which I don't really understand why it would. Because it's, I mean, unless it, if the Cheshire Police were doing it to make a quick buck, then, which obviously they're not, um, but they've got this footage and, you know, they are the ones there. They're the people that would be interviewed in these documentaries anyway. Yeah, um, exactly. Yesterday, at the time of recording, uh, Lad Bible released an interview with a lady called Vanessa Frake, who is a female prison governor, uh, a very, a very uh, widely regarded one as well. And she had the following to say on Letby's most likely existence and experiences in prison uh, as she now begins her whole life tariff. And obviously Letby is now the fourth woman to get a whole life tariff. Uh, Rose West, Myra Hindley and Joanna Dennehy. Um, and yet, having covered two of those cases, the Wests and the Moores murders, they were vastly different in terms of their life experiences, their childhoods. Um, so it's really interesting to see her in that group of people but so uh, Vanessa Frake what she went on to say in this interview was um, that Letby will likely be kept in an entirely segregated protected unit on her own um, for at least the next few years before eventually trying to integrate her into the general population which I, I don't see happening well it's like we you know with with, with men if paedophiles well, they they get the, the treatment and baby killers which I know is a horrible term but in, in female prison they're the ones that basically seen as the equivalent the scum the scummiest of all scum so who will get attacked and get i can't see how letby would not get that treatment uh, exactly i mean they they, they uh, she said that, that she would be constantly risk assessed and they would only make these decisions when they deem it safe for her and those around her to be to be moved but it, I, I really don't see that happening because it's such a per personal case it's one of those as well where you can just you can just imagine that someone turning a blind eye with a door being left open isn't it which we, we, we've heard in other cases before definitely and then finally uh, either way Letby is currently in a segregated protected unit at HM Prison Low Newton which is a closed women's prison in County Durham closed meaning that it houses those whose escape would be highly dangerous to the public or even a national security threat essentially meaning that uh, they require maximum security conditions um and in when I found that interview with Vanessa Frake, I thought, oh, I'll just have a look on Twitter because you never know what it's a funny old place. You never know what you're going to find. But in looking in searching for Lucy Letby on Twitter, I found that there are several dozen accounts, which really surprised me, that may or may not belong to the same person uh, using the hashtags freedom for Lucy and hashtag Lucy is innocent. And yeah, they are. Their main angle seems to be that Lucy's handwritten notes that were colour-coded contained secret messages and therefore were not broken down correctly by investigators or the judge. And yeah, the deeper you go into these different accounts, there are so many that deem that it's literally 
a series of medication errors and a medical professional that's been scapegoated for these murders. Uh, many of them saying it was a coincidence, set of errors, and just a woman trying to do her job. And they're campaigning for her release. But it's it's a, it's a small minority, but still more than a dozen surprised me to be campaigning for her innocence. Uh, a month ago, on the 15th of September 2023, the Court of Appeal confirmed that Lucy Letby had appealed all of her convictions and just 10 days later, the Crown Prosecution Service confirmed that there would be a retrial on one of the six counts of attempted murder uh, against Lucy Letby, uh, on which the jury at the original trial could not reach a final verdict, uh, meaning that there's a chance there'll be another trial next year, uh, which is currently penciled in for the 10th of June 2024, uh, but the trial will not be conducted until the Court of Appeal has considered whether or not to grant Letby's appeal against the existing convictions. So yeah, I think that's again just to rake up and put everyone through it again. I don't know if that's just her appealing them to try and look innocent or appealing them to put people through the emotions of the trial once again, but um, yeah, it's, it, that would, to me was quite shocking. Unless she thinks she's been given different legal counsel and they think they could have gone on a different angle with her or I don't know perhaps the plea I don't know it's it can't really see where they can go from here unless some new evidence has emerged or well that's it and it's they've only granted it at the moment on one of the attempted murder charges and so therefore they're having to bring everyone together all over again uh, potentially to go through this which I just I don't understand it even if you were to lose from her from, lose from her um, sentencing one of the attempted murders she's still going to have a whole lot of tariff yeah it's not like yeah. she's going to see ever see the light of day again. So it, it seems very, yeah, unnecessary, um, especially to put the families and victims through that once again. Well, there you have it. That was the case of Lucy Letby, the audience vote for the series. Um, yeah, really harrowing case. And um, yeah, for me, that's one of the, the most brutal and upsetting cases we've covered, which seems to be a trend with the audience votes, um, guys. So we will do an audience vote for series nine, but let's, you know... Let's stay away from baby and child murder if we if we can. That would be nice. Uh, the and in general, in, yeah, in general, that's a good rule to live by. And this case kind of changed our decision for the finale of the series. Um, we thought we'd end it on a bit more of a lighter, mysterious subject, a bit of a lighter topic, but it's still fascinating. Still think you guys are going to love it. Um, but I don't know if you've got a cryptic clue, Ben. Um, I haven't, Dan. Maybe you could just play a bit of a uh, little bit of this track now. Yes, yeah, so I don't know if you guys do know that track, but if you do, you'll probably get a little hint of where we're going with that. But um, it's not long enough for you to Shazam, which which was on purpose. So <laughs> it's a bit of a bit of a cryptic one for you guys. But um, yeah, hopefully that one's a bit lighter, a bit of a as we say, palate cleanser for the series. It's been yeah, it's been a lot, it's been a long series, but it's been a good series. We hope you guys have enjoyed it. Um, and yeah, as we said for next series, we're gonna have a big old team discussion and figure out what our plans are for next series. But as ever, we're excited to come back bigger, better and stronger absolutely absolutely and if you just can't wait until next week's episode or for the gap between series eight and series nine then why not check us out on our website icmap.co.uk because there's so much going on there at the moment we've got first of all a brand new line of merch the sunny side up range yes indeed um yeah we um yeah photos from the very talented mark logan up on the website now we've got jumpers we've got t-shirts and we've also got crop tees we've got pint glasses we've got tote bags a lot of requests for tote bags and we, we have got them back we also have the more original style tote bags are on the website now as well so be sure to check them out and we also on the website have a new tier 
is the Igmap Taster tier, and it's only two dollars mm. a month, and you get two of the Minnesota's a month and AI Carumba, and essentially, yeah, you have access to basically half the back catalogue. Um, but yes, yeah, so if you want a little taster, dip your toe in, see if you is, is this worth it, and then hopefully you go, yeah, oh wow, I want to hear about that. Delicious, one. yeah, dip your toe in, taste delicious. <laughs> but uh, there you go. Dan needs to uh, do the penultimate uh, decision of the. Uh, TTs versus BCIFs. Give it to Tom. Give it to Tom. Oh, yeah, my hands are tied on this one. Uh, I think I have to yeah. give it to Tom because it's uh, yeah, very, very uplifting. On. Good. Yeah, Thank you so much. About mine. And uh, also, a uh, quick one as well, Dan. <clears throat> the Countess Hospital, named after Princess Diana and Prince Charles, who were also the Countess of that area when they opened up the uh, hospital. Wow, should've, that should've was that. terrific. <laughs> and interesting. <laughs> well, there you go. But yes, guys, if you have a quick minute, if you're not already, why not follow us over on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts? It, it does help more than you'll know. And give us a little review. It'd be very much appreciated. But we'll be back once again next week with the finale of the series, um, which we're very excited for. And thank you for joining us for today. And like we always say, we say this all the time. Keep doing what you're doing. Mm. Uh, keeping bags for life under your bed full of... That's not good, is it? Bags for life are fine. No, but full of, know, that's a GDPR breach. Several hundred GDPR breaches. Mm. Uh, don't, probably don't do your, your segment about one-star reviews because that's going to, mm. it's a bad idea in hindsight, wasn't it? Mm. And now we're asking for five. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, if you do give a one-star, be sure to put the reason as no, 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 Ben no. slagging off the NHS. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, guys, take care. All best to Ben. <laughs>I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk.